Gentlemen, we're live. Okay, so uh, thank you for making the time for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having so me. So you are uh, uh, right now probably the most popular trending name in America. I would say you're loved and hated at the same time. Is that a fair assessment of where you are today? Um, absolutely. Okay. So we're going to do the impossible today. This is my challenge for myself and see if we can pull this off or not. Uh, I would assume that folks at YouTube, they follow our content very closely, uh, especially when we do some of the interviews. I'm one that's a fan of YouTube. I'm one that I think YouTube is a very, very important platform in the marketplace right now. I think it's something where uh, it's a great opportunity for us to do debates and folks make a decision for themselves and people like yourself can come and make an argument. I hope the people at YouTube allow this interview to stay up, let the audience make a decision. And if they don't like the way I interview you, take it down. If they like the way I interview you, I hope they leave it up because I think millions of people need to hear what you need to say and make a decision for themselves. So folks at YouTube, give us a shot. We have a bet here, just so everybody knows. Our bet is, I can't say the names, but it's fair to say we all made a wager here on how long everybody thinks this interview is going to stay up. Okay, We have from 45 minutes to... Some longer, some shorter, but we're going to see what people are going to say. Having said that, let's get right into it. So number one question before we go through all of these things. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go through reasons why people dislike you, disagree with you. Uh, your last tweet I was able to pull up on Twitter on uh, uh, whether that was the cause on why you were taken down. And then we'll go through a lot of different stories. Recently, obviously, we're on the Joe Rogan podcast, over 50 million downloads. It's been said it's the most popular podcast that they've done on Spotify, and Spotify has kept it up. A couple of the short clips that you had on have been taken down. Many of the short clips that say Dr. Robert Malone have been taken down. The one word that's concerning a lot of different people is mass formation. The following word after that, which Forbes has been talking about, maybe we'll get into that a little bit as well, and I'll push back on that with you. But a few different things here. Why, why, do, you think, um, why do you think so many people are trying to, you know, uh, silence you from having people uh, hear what you have to say. There's got to be a reason for somebody to say, listen, this guy's doing more harm than good. What do you say to those people? So we're, this, and it partially relates to mass formation, this theory of Matthias Desmet, not my theory. And uh, it, it partially relates, it goes back to a very active campaign to promote two people the Nobel Prize. If if you track back to the origin of a lot of these attacks, yeah. it goes back to the very concerted effort that was mounted by BioNTech, Pfizer, and uh, by UPenn to promote Carrico and Weissman for the Nobel Prize. And they got most of the major prizes. They got uh, the Lasker Award, which, by the way, is managed by an investment fund. Um, but they didn't get the Nobel. And um, it was fascinating watching this play out. It was a standard concerted campaign. And, mm -hmm. and there is a school of thought that if one wishes to win the Nobel Prize, you have to use mass media in order to influence the committee. And so I saw this playing out, particularly my wife did, which is what kind of sparked all of this off, is I was being written out of history in, in um, Wikipedia and in every other platform. And people were, it's basically a stolen valor situation. People were taking credit for what I did in the late 1980s. I've never denied what they did. I've never attacked what they did. It is, it's a scientific effort. 
that they accomplished. Why, Why would they do that? Because, Kai, can you do me a favor? Can you pull up the article I gave you uh, from, uh, 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 I gave you an article uh, in regards to who came out with mRNA? If you can pull that article up. It's not that one. It's one of the most recent ones I just sent you. This is uh, the, you're talking about the nature one? Uh, da, 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 that one right there. Okay, so this article came up because the biggest thing is I, when I go online and I see where people give you a lot of criticism is he has on his LinkedIn profile that he's the inventor of mRNA, right? right? That's what they say. So let me kind of put this on there and see what you're going to be saying. So I go online and uh, I, there's this doctor called Dr. Uh, Eric Topol, if I'm pronouncing right. his last name correctly or not, and he's followed by some credible people. It's yeah, not like he's not followed by credible yeah, people. He is, he is part of the mainstream narrative, has been for a long time. Fair enough. He said, on a related matter, Dr. Malone, who asserts he is the inventor of mRNA vaccine and actively cultivates vaccine skepticism, is not and has admitted that fact. And then he puts the links below and talking about two other people. And then he brings up this picture uh, of you and his tweet. But if you read this article, go all the way to the top, and the article that says, go all the way to the top, all the way to the top, how scientists Drew Wiseman, MED87, GRS87, and Catalin Carrico developed a revolutionary mRNA technology inside COVID vaccine. While I'm reading through this article, there's not a single mention of your name in here. Uh, and then in the comment section, some people say, "Why? if you can do control F, type in Malone, do control F and type in Malone, the only place you see this is in the bottom by John Carter, whoever commented this on January 3rd, 2022, which is three days ago. This article is complete rewrite of history. No mention of Dr. Malone, who claims to have discovered in vitro and in vivo RNA transfection uh, uh, at the Salk Institute in 1987, and that he later invented mRNA vaccines in 1988. This predates anything cited here. So you, your claim is, I'm the inventor of this. They say you are not. They don't mention any of the names. Why are they saying that, and why are you saying that you're the inventor? So the reason that I'm saying it is because I have nine issued patents that have my name on it that were filed in 1988. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and this uh, is public information. It's widely available and never cited. So, for instance, the uh, Nature article of the Tangled History of mRNA Vaccines, which I was, uh, I, had, I provided that author with extensive access to deep information, okay. including the primary uh, invention disclosure, which I validated by um, allowing him to speak, enabling him to speak to the scientist Mark Kindy that cross-signed it. I think it was 1987 or 1988. You said enabling him. Who is him? I'm speaking of the author of the article okay. um, uh, uh, in the um, Tangled History of mRNA okay. that was published in Nature. Um, that None of these articles have cited the patents that have been part of this mainstream press narrative all the way through, including – so this traces back to the uh, – let me, let me roll back a little bit more. Drew Weissman is a Tony Fauci postdoc. Katie Kuriko is literally a former Hungarian spy. Um, can you type that? Can you type that up there? Just type in her name yeah, and type can, in Hungarian spy because yeah. I want us to uh, uh, just go back to the article prior to that, go all the way to the top. Yeah, it's in the European uh, uh, press. My goal is by the end of the, call, by the, end of the interview, just type in her, uh, copy-paste her name. Yeah, but I, I recommend you right there, don't, use, don't use Google. And then go do copy-paste. What would you like us to use? DuckDuckGo. So, 
Okay, go to DuckDuckGo and uh, type in her name and Hungarian spy. Hungarian spy. So just so you know, nothing pops up so far. Okay. A typical Hungarian story. One was on the spectrum. COVID-19 vaccine killed there we go. Click second click. Euro news. Second one. There you go. That's third one. I was innocent. This is um, this is. Soviet era ghost returns to haunt COVID nineteen vaccine scientists. Kirilska has just got her job as Jones hungry. In nineteen seventy eight, the secret police knocked on her door. Kirko was given a choice: agree to cooperate with the communist state uh, security apparatus or accept that her career in scientific research was over before it had begun. I knew how the system worked. I was afraid, so I signed the recruitment document she signed. She said, no so this is her response. Okay. There's multiple pr other publications that okay. go back, and I was contacted by people from Hungary early on in this and said, look, this is what we know about her. Who has verified that she was a Hungarian spy that's There's a credible source? Multiple articles. Do you know any one of them that you can like? No, I can, you can easily search and find. Okay, it, so fair enough. But go ahead. You're saying so she's a Hungarian spy. So these two have um, an interesting history background. Okay. Katie, I learned about Katie. She contacted me. Um, it was almost a decade after I had done the original work. I was working at UC Davis as an assistant professor. Okay. And you can find this the the footprints of this interaction in her first mRNA-related paper, in which she not only cites my work as, as one of the standard academic citations, but she lists in the acknowledgments um, appreciation for my interaction with her. She called me. I put her in touch with um, junior people in my laboratory group, mm -hmm. another assistant professor. I put her in touch with a professor at UC uh, Riverside mm -hmm. who had done key work in mRNA 5' prime and 3' prime and translated region act uh, interactions and uh, did anything I could to help her, invited her to a conference in Annapolis that I had set up, that I was organizing, um, and, and actively tried to help her move forward with her work. This is all a, literally a, just about a decade after I did my work. So she is very aware of what I had done. I helped her early on. And then when she and Drew Weissman wrote their um, initial review paper where mm -hmm. they talked about mRNA and mRNA vaccines, which yep. is what this whole thread builds off of, they grossly minimized my contributions. Why would they do that, and how could they do that? It's, this is the way science is. Science is a wicked competitive business, and it's easy to do. You just it's you undersite or you miscite or you fail to cite. So, so let me ask you. Let me ask you this. For me, my experience have been for whatever reason, doctors are extremely arrogant and very cocky, almost like a god. Uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, hubris might be a word. Hubris might be the word, but more like uh, uh, the uh, feeling of I'm God. I know what I'm talking about. I'm the expert. You it's know. it's insanely competitive. It's all about money and power. So so, but here's the point though. The, when I do a lot of the research, when people come, I'm not in your world. So all I'm doing is I'm just speculating stuff, and I'm trying to get a little bit closer to uh, the truth by uh, asking people on both sides. So. You know, most people will say nobody ever invented 
a vaccine. It's co-inventor. You did it with a group. There was a group of people that helped you That is you do the it. criticism. So let me let me give Please. you some feedback. Sure. Here's a metaphor. Okay. Just because a group of engineers designed the 737 MAX, it doesn't mean that the Wright brothers didn't invent power flight. The core technology and the applications are disclosed in nine issued U.S. patents and multiple foreign patents that were filed in... A, I think it was March 1988, and another patent that was filed by the Salk Institute, but dropped, and it was filed on exactly the same day. So there, this whole issue, this is why I, you know, and it's, frankly, it's my wife that is really royally pissed off about all of this, about this stolen valor, is because she lived through it. It was an incredibly stressful period in our time. I don't understand how that's possible, though, Doc, because... You know, Steve Jobs can talk about he invented, uh, you know, the technology. Everybody in the world knows it's Wozniak. You know, nobody can take that credit away from Wozniak. That was in 1977, 76. So so. so there has been a concerted campaign to write me out of history all the way through. Why, though? Because of the Nobel. Okay, so then I read another article that said something about the fact that uh, that this man is so confident, he's so semi, you know, you can't even tell him anything, it's hard to communicate with him. Uh, uh, I'm sure you've read this article yourself as no, well. No, I haven't. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll find it and I'll give it to you. I can understand that part, meaning uh, I can understand working with a personality that is unreasonable, that is extremely confident in their ways of doing things, that maybe they rub people the wrong way. So would you say you're somebody that maybe throughout your career rub some of your peers and colleagues the wrong way? Because that could be a reason. For sure. Okay, cool. There's, there's been times in my career, yeah. especially when I was younger, mm-hmm. I was very confident. I came out of an intensely rigorous training environment at UC Davis um, with a mentor, two mentors, mm-hmm. one in particular that just was on a daily basis in lab meetings, you know, stand and deliver. What are the data? What are the controls? Bang, 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 bang. And I came out of that, I was cocky. Okay. And, and it's part of why I experienced what I experienced, intense hazing at the Salk Institute. Them hazing you? Yeah. Okay. And they had, there's a long history of hazing of young people in, at the Salk Institute. But that's, that's a tangent, okay? We're really, that's a rabbit hole. Um, absolutely. When who, I was, who did you piss off coming up? Uh, folks, by the way, if you're listening to this, a couple things I do want to tell you is we are extremely thankful that Dr. Robert Malone agreed to fly out, fly, out, fly out here. David, how long has this been scheduled for? This has been scheduled for a few weeks. Yeah, about yes, two or three weeks. Two or three weeks. But one, one of my suggestions I want to make to you is, folks, share this with anybody you know because it is live and we don't know how long it's going to stay live. And if you if if there's any chance this gets taken down, text us at 310-340-1132, 310-340-1132 with the word Malone. Just put Malone, M-A-L-O-N-E. We will get you the link on an interview that may be elsewhere, but we are optimistic that YouTube's going to allow this to stay on. So let's go back to the question I was asking you. Who did you piss off coming up? We all, I'm a very competitive guy. I've been in the financial industry for 20 years. So the name is Inder Verma. Inder Verma. Okay, Inder was my mentor. Okay. Can we um, Google Inder Verma? Please do. Yeah. Google Inder Verma Science Magazine. Inder Verma Science Magazine. Yeah, those okay. are the keywords. All right. There, it's, it's his name. Um, there Did we he go. spell it right? Or? So, so um, 
yeah, you got to put a space, inner space, Verma. Kai, it's pretty impressive what you're doing today. Okay, there you go, click. And then there's the following article. Famed cancer biologist, alleged sexually okay. harassed woman for you, decades. You need to understand that Inder was the postdoc in David Baltimore's lab that characterized reverse transcriptase. When I joined his lab, I was two, the reason I went to UC San Diego is because the two leading gene therapists in the world at the time were both there, Ted Friedman and Inder. Ted was on the main campus. He's a pediatrician, and Inder was at the Salk. Inder was one of the top scientists at the Salk. Um, his mentor was David Baltimore. David Baltimore was trained at the Salk in the laboratory of Renato Dobeco, who also won the Nobel Prize. Are they both around today? Uh, Inder has apparently vanished off the scene. No one can find him, I'm told, from multiple journalists that have tried to find him. But he's alive. To best of my knowledge, I have he's no idea. He's just playing hide-and-go-seek with the world. Because of what happened here, there's a follow-on. Um, Inder, what happened, I mean, there's a, there's a, this is a whole rabbit hole. Do you really want to go here? I actually do because I want to know who you pissed off on your way up to have. If you really are the inventor of uh, the vaccine that you're claiming you, you, you are, why would all these people not? You, have, <clears throat> must, you must have pissed somebody off throughout okay, the way. Okay, so let me, let me modify what you're saying because I've been really clear about this too repeatedly. I have never claimed to be the person that invented these vaccines. I invented the platform technology and its applications. There have been two improvements, fundamental improvements in that technology subsequently. Okay. One of them is the use of pseudouridine. So incorporating pseudouridine mm -hmm. is a chemical molecule into the RNA backbone is the invention of Carrico and Weissman. The other one is the move, now this is techie stuff, so this is deep technology, chemical structure, is the migration from a quaternary amine that is permanently positively charged on these cationic lipids to the use of a tertiary amine. That is, um, that is the seminal enabling invention improvement that has given rise to these current products. Okay, and, and that is uh, attributed to the company Acuitas, um, and uh, researchers at the University of British Columbia. And as far as I'm concerned, if there is a Nobel for these particular vaccines, that goes to those people in that group. The thing about the claim of Carrico and Weissman that has been so actively promoted mm -hmm. is that the use of pseudouridine is not actually enabling. The CureVac product which is developed, so this is a separate mRNA vaccine company in yep. Germany, okay? And their product was late to market. They did the proper preclinical testing. They weren't fast-tracked in the same way that BioNTech and Moderna were, okay? CureVac um, developed their product, which does not incorporate pseudouridine, and they did their safety testing, and they administered at a dose of 15 micrograms of RNA. Pfizer is at 30, Moderna is at 100. CureVac's trials elicited about a 40% response in terms of uh, immunogenicity. The other ones were more in the low 90s, high 80s. 
And so the assertion was made that the CareVac product failed. Within the political context of when it came out, because it came out later, um, they decided, CareVac decided, I'm not part of that company, just carefully watching it. CareVac decided not to go forward. They're going forward with other vaccines, and the European Medicines Agency, the European Union, actually issued a contract to buy that vaccine from them. But CareVac decided not to go forward with it. But they did large-scale clinical trials and developed their safety profile and everything else. But they used a much lower dose. But it was still highly immunogenic, which clearly demonstrates that the incorporation of this artificial compound, pseudouridine, which is the basis for the Carrico and Weissman claims, the basis for their claims is not that they came up with the idea. And I had a very active back-and-forth discussion with Katie Carrico over this. When, okay. when was this? Um, many, many months ago, last fall. Okay. And I've got all those emails. Matter of fact, I provided all those emails to uh, the both the guy that wrote the Atlantic article and the guy that wrote the Nature article. And what did he do with it? Disregarded it largely. Who else have you shared those emails with? Uh, those are the only ones that have asked for it. I, I think that you give it to us, we'd love to share it with the world for okay, people to so, see it. So I can show you the email correspondence yeah. with Katie, in which Katie admits that she didn't come up with these ideas. So my fundamental position, this is why all of this doesn't really bother me. There's two reasons. Number one, I have many, many issued patents. In my opinion, inventorship, this term inventorship, mm-hmm. remember, I've, I've been writing patents my whole life. Sure. Dealing with the Patent and Trademark Office my whole life. I've, I don't know, 18, 15, something like that including a fundamental patent that I shared just with my wife on mRNA vaccines for intranasal administration, mRNA DNA recombinant viruses. We got the fundamental mucosal vaccine patent, which Pfizer at one point wanted to license from us, by the way. Um, When was that? Oh, it was uh, mid-90s. Okay. Um, So So, so, so the point is, in terms of who invented what, In my opinion, inventorship is not established by a journalist or a fact checker. Inventorship is established by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Then if that's the case, if that's the case, how easy would it be for an average human being to go and find out that the patent of that vaccine is you? It is trivial. And what my wife has done, Dr. Jill Glasspool Malone, wife and partner for over 42 years, lived through all these things directly. Mm -hmm. Okay. First person account has been on our web page for ages. It she sent it out as an email blast. We have some very large email lists. Sure. With all of the primary information documented, you can go on our web page at www.rwmalonemd.com and see the whole history with the supporting documents. Put the it's link all below there. for people that can go to that. Okay. It's all there. Okay. But but I'm talking about for for me, the average person, if I go up there, uh, go to DuckDuckGo or go to Google and just type in inventor of mRNA. Let's see what comes up. Again, the reason I, to well, me. you gotta, you got to start with Google. So, so you go were to asking, Google. You were go asking, to Google. while we're doing that, you were asking the question about Ender. Okay, go to inventor of mRNA. Who invented, okay, it's fine, inventor of mRNA. RNA. And this term is used, um, it's used widely. It's like a shorthand that a lot of journalists use. Yeah. I've never said this is accurate. 
I didn't invent mRNA. If you're a believer, God invented RNA, mRNA. If you are a... But that's what it says on, on your LinkedIn account. Inventor of mRNA vaccine technology and oh. mRNA vaccines. Now I don't have a Twitter account anymore. I'm sorry, your LinkedIn account. Your... doesn't say that I invented mRNA. What does it say under it? It says, says inventor of mRNA vaccines or mRNA vaccine technology. Okay, so type in mRNA, inventor of mRNA. I no longer have a LinkedIn account or a Twitter account. That was account. also taken down. Yeah, two days ago. So your LinkedIn is now down. Yeah, they with no explanation. Yeah, I was trying to research you right now on LinkedIn. I couldn't find you. Okay, yeah. so 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 that gentleman that you were going to, go back to the gentleman he, he was talking about. Uh, er, er, uh, so this, this whole, but this whole thread, I have... MRNA is a fundamental biological model. Stay on that, Kai. Stay on that. What I'm trying to find out is the following. Let me go back to the question. You were going there, and then you said you want, you want to know the whole story, and we went a different uh, direction. Why is he the wrong person to piss off on your way up? Who was he, he? He is incredibly powerful. He ended up being the president of the Salk Institute. Okay. What does that mean to the average person that's listening to this? He was, I think, the head of the national—he was certainly the editor of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. He was the editor-in-chief of the main oncology journal. Okay. He is—the science—the way science is played in the United States is hardball, full-on hardball. Okay. Okay? And there are cabals, associations of scientists and their former postdocs, and they operate as units, Okay. They are competitive units. And Inder was sitting at the top of an amazingly powerful stack, in large part because his mentor was David Baltimore, who got the Nobel Prize for reverse transcriptase, was seminal in setting up the regulations for recombinant DNA, former head of Caltech, um, you know, left the Salk, went to MIT, ended up head of an institute at MIT before he went to Caltech. And there was a huge scandal around him in terms of his ethics. Inder was the postdoc that characterized reverse transcriptase for David Baltimore. Inder was, I think, a full professor at the age of 30. He was fast-tracked, incredibly powerful, um, controlled a very large amount of money. Credible guy. Credible. He, he, science, uh, for me, Science is science. You know, whether, whether you're powerful or I'm powerful or Tony Fauci is powerful, one of the things I love about it is it's an environment of ideas. And, you know, if, if I say something in a scientific forum mm -hmm. and a young graduate student pops up in the audience and has a argument that demonstrates that my interpretation of the data is wrong, that person will be heard and I will change my opinion. That's the fundamental nature. That's why science has to have this dynamic I tension. I fully agree with you. We need that discourse and the debate because, uh, for me, the hardest thing for the average person you talk to is who do you trust? So if you can flip back on your, on your search engine and go to the next science article, bingo, Salk Institute professor. So that's not a science, the science version. That's a San Diego version. Resigns after investigation. Yeah, so... Um, Inder had a long history of abuse. Why'd you leave that article? Go back to that article. Resigns after investigation. Go a little to San Diego Union. He's an incredibly powerful person, and this is typical of these super powerful scientists, is they can do no wrong. Because the indirect money, indirect cost money that they generate supports their institute. In modern academia, 
these institutes and universities are supported by the indirect costs at Harvard. For every dollar, if you get a federal grant or contract, for every dollar that you get to spend on your research, something like a dollar ten goes to the university. For every dollar you get to spend, a dollar ten goes, goes to, to your university. dean in the university. Okay. Okay. So you're generating as 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 a faculty member. Yeah. You're a revenue a major revenue source that supports the university. This is all built into the structure of NIH. Part of the NIH mission is to support American medical colleges. So did he ever lose his license? Did he? He's not an MD. He's not an MD. Okay, he's a PhD. So he's a PhD. So he resigns after investigation in what? Is it sexual allegations type of thing? Or? Yeah, but it's only part of how he operated. He, he was incredibly powerful and grossly unethical. Um, Who sexual, respects him? Maybe tell me this, because you know a lot of times you will learn. Of, of if you're if you're if you're editor in chief of Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences in the major arc, uh, oncology journal, everybody has to be nice to you. Ender did stuff routinely. Let me tell you a story. Okay, I'm a graduate student. Okay, and and I spoke to a postdoc in the lab at the same time who had exactly the same experience. So I'm a graduate student. I'm working in this laboratory. I'm the only graduate student. It's an intensely competitive environment. The way he ran his lab is he would have multiple postdocs all assigned on the same topic, and they would compete with each other within the laboratory. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's one strategy that these big, big scientists use. So um, when I was in the lab, Inder came to me with a stack of people's grant applications. These are supposed to be confidential. And he gave them to me, and he said, read these and get ideas. So I, t I, I was shocked. Because this How is- How old are you at that time? Um, 27. He said, read these and get ideas. Right, okay. other people's grants. Okay. They're now, supposed to be confidential. Now let me ask you, is that a traditional uh, exercise that many people were doing at that time, or that's I don't know about anybody else, but that is grossly in inappropriate okay. and illegal, okay. unethical. Grossly unethical. I ask that because I don't know your world. Grants, grants, and pr grant proposals and contract proposals are supposed to be strictly confidential when they're sent out to the reviewers. And these okay. days, the NIH will actually put you in jail if you do this. Okay. So he asks you to look at these and come up with ideas to to get ideas from other people's submission. Sure. You're 27 proposals. years old at the time. Okay. So I go to um, uh, the head, the functional science head of the Salk Institute, mm -hmm. and I say. This has happened. What am I supposed to do about this? And he said, maybe Inder isn't the best mentor for you. Who said that to you? Um, this, I'm blanking on his name. It's not Tony Hunter. There's an, it was another lead scientist in the molecular biology and virology laboratories. Okay. Okay. So this is the environment where this kind of thing is tolerated. And in addition, in Inder's lab, there was this long history of sexual harassment by him in, you know, in the dark room with women, et cetera, et cetera. Um, eventually, it caught up with him. But for a long time, I'm told that the way the Salk handled this, because there were multiple claims, um, is that if you were a woman and you wanted to work in his laboratory, you felt like you needed to as a postdoc or whatever, mm -hmm. you had to sign a disclaimer with the Salk Institute that you would not sue them if he did any of these actions to you. That's how it was handled. Is that known? Is that known amongst people that work there? Yes. 
Okay. Now, who would you say were some of his allies' names? Like, would you, is he an ally with Fauci? Is he a friend of a Fauci? Is I don't he... know what his relationship is okay. with Tony. Got his it. main so power structure runs through the David Baltimore network. Got it. Got it. Okay, so what was the following out with the two of you? What Was there a obvious falling out, or was it just like subtle, look, we're going to go our separate ways? No, it was really, I mean, I ended up with a nervous breakdown over what happened. I, I had a formal diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder wow. when I took my master's degree and left. I took a master's in lieu of a PhD. Okay? There was a cascade of events. Um, and, and for me, you got to go back in time. I'm this cocky, arrogant, believe in myself, been out of this, come out of this high-pressure environment where I'm rigorously trained. I'm able to withstand scrutiny and and go toe-to-toe with the best, and have been now. But I'm I'm in my 20s, and um, so I own those character flaws, and I compensate for them now. It's part of why I am the way I am that I went through that transition. Um, but I own what I was then. Um, I would challenge anybody. I would challenge Ginger. Uh, and Publicly or privately? Both. Okay. Because that's the nature of science. Sure. Okay. Um, or I thought it was. Sure. Uh, I mean, to set the framework, I think there was six or seven Nobel laureates at the Salk at the time, in addition to Jonas Salk. It was the pinnacle of molecular virology in the world, arguably. Um, and I was working for the top gene therapy expert, retroviral gene therapy expert, which is what I wanted to make my career in. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, the laboratory when I was there included um, a guy named Dinko Valerio who was pioneering a whole new technology for gene therapy yep. using recombinant DNA virus called adenovirus. Okay. Dinko left the lab, founded a company called Crucell. Um, because of my ideas, he came to me once and he said, after we'd both left the lab, I'm setting the stage, not bragging on myself, okay? Um, this was a period of intense intellectual foment. Um, I had come up with these ideas about using gene therapy technology for vaccines. Dinko created this company, Crucell, acquired this cell line called Percy 6, which is of fetal origin, um, tried to develop the platform for gene therapy purposes and came to meet a conference a few years after we'd both left Inder's lab and said, Robert, you're right. Um, the best application for this technology is for vaccines. And I'm going to change the focus of Crucell to become a vaccine company instead of a gene therapy company. Mm. Crucell was later sold for what was considered to be a huge amount of money at the time to a company called Johnson & Johnson. That is the technology that is in the J&J vaccine. That is why the J&J vaccine technology exists. It goes back to that same laboratory in that same time frame. It was an intense period of innovation. But Inder had this weakness. Um, He, talk about arrogant. Um, A cascade of events happened that I've spoken about for hours and hours on other podcasts, and you can look on our website, and you can see my wife's first-person accounting with all the documents, et cetera. So there's no reason to go over the cascade of things that happened that led to the inventions and the discoveries. No, I'm more curious to know, what what, was it a a public falling out where afterwards he had a vendetta against you? Just hear me out. Yeah. Okay. Um, So I filed invention disclosures had Mark Kendi, 
the postdoc in the lab working next to me cross-signed them for this stuff and filed them with the Salk Institute. I'd been trained in what one had to do to protect intellectual property. Mm -hmm. Okay, so filed them with the Salk Institute. This, I had an interview with the Salk lawyers. They made a determination that I was the sole inventor. Meanwhile, the head of the Salk Institute, de Hoffman, who later died of AIDS from a blood transfusion, he, I think he worked on the Manhattan Project. He was a big shot lawyer. Okay. Okay. He was the head of the Salk Institute. The Salk had created an organization, I think it was called SIBIA, Salk Institute Biologic Associates, I think was the acronym. And it was intended to be their for-profit arm of their not-for-profit Salk Institute so that it would generate revenue so that they could become independent of the NIH for funding or less dependent. Okay, so they were hoping that all this massive amount of intellectual property they were creating would go to this for-profit company, generate revenue so that the professors didn't have to write grants and contracts all the time. Um, and so de Hoffman calls Ender in and calls me into the office on short notice and says, what is this about you setting up a collaboration with Syntex? Because Syntex had been the source of the cationic lipids consequent to Tony Hunter, another senior Salk faculty member. Um, it's a brilliant mind, still there. Okay? Tony had advised me to get in touch with these people at Syntex to access this new emerging technology, I think because he'd reviewed the paper. It wasn't published yet. And he said, Robert, you need to get in touch with Syntex to test their new lipid technology. That is what led to the fundamental final invention that enabled all of this. And I had set up a collaboration agreement with Ender's full knowledge with Syntex in order to get them to transfer these kinetic lipids into the salts so that I could use them as intellectual property and, and composition of matter transfer. De Hoffman heard about all this because he heard about the invention disclosure and he called Ender in and then I got called in and I got asked what was the story, what happened here. And Ender was being attacked for having established this illicit collaboration with Syntex. And um, Ender denied knowing anything about it, said that I was a sole actor in this. He had no knowledge of this. He didn't know what I was doing. I had just done this independently. Um, I was blown away. I thought in good faith I was coming into this really high-level person to disclose the, the chain of events. And in fact, what I hadn't realized is I was coming into an environment where Ender was being called on the carpet for doing something that was expressly forbidden by the new policy at the Salk because it would result in an intellectual entanglement, intellectual property entanglement with this for-profit company called Syntex in Palo Alto. And so Ender denied knowing anything about it. I was stunned. You know, remember, I'm, I'm, I'm not even 30 years old. I'm, I'm belie I believe in science, right? Um, and I've just encountered big science. For the first time. Good and hard. Yeah. Okay, not for the first time. I mean, I cut my teeth at the laboratory in Davis that made the first discovery of a retrovirus being involved in an immunodeficiency syndrome in primates. No, no, I'm talking about you're, you're coming across for the first time the manipulative side of science, like the, the, this, the power this play. This hard, hardcore right, power saying. play, okay? okay? And so I go to, I went, in this one I went to Tony Hunter, and I said, Tony, Inder said this. I can't believe it. 
And he said to me, Robert, of course Ender lied. What did you expect him to do? And that was a you're no longer in Kansas moment for me. But is that how it ended? No. Ender had it. So then there became this whole long thread. I worked with the Salt lawyers. We wrote a patent based on what I had done and what I disclosed. Sure. And the potential applications for it. And then there was a series of papers that came out. So this is this is when you when you uh, invented the mRNA vaccine technology. This is when I invented the so the thing the tripwire that made everybody realize that I'd stumbled onto something big was this serendipitous series of events where I was teaching an embry TAing teaching associate an embryology course where I was preparing embryos we would call them frog tadpoles sure. um, and chick embryos. And I decided to take the technology that I'd been working on and see if it would work in these whole animals. And it did, to my great surprise. And um, that was the tripwire that set this whole cascade in motion because that was the origin of in vivo non-viral delivery. Everybody suddenly realized that this was a fundamental change. And the University of California mm-hmm. and the professor at... Um, uh, the University of California that was the professor teaching the embryology course that I was working under, her name's Christine Holt. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a, a fellow still training, not a real faculty member. Um, she insisted that she should be on the patent. She should be an inventor. Ender insisted that he should be an inventor, even though the Salk Institute said in their initial assessment that he wasn't a co-inventor, and he denied knowing anything about it to de Hoffman. So, so long story short, just for the sake of time, because i got a lot of other things that I want to go through with you, Just is it fair to say that the whole dispute was over, here's a young guy that comes in, you, you stumble upon something that is absolutely ridiculous that can help a lot of people out. It's transformational, and then and then and then, and then everybody wants to take credit for it and because, own it because it's a potential huge, which happens all the time. Whole huge gold rush. Which, by the way, that happens all the time. Not only where you know the whole story with uh, uh, Tesla, not the car Tesla, but Tesla Edison. You know that whole story, things like that. This has historically happened many times. Yeah, it's, Do you remember that one movie called The Genius? Uh, uh, what is that one movie, uh, uh, Kai, where the guy creates the windshield wiper and Ford tries to right, sue him and they say, we came about, up yeah. with it. And it's a very good movie. Those types of stories are everywhere. So I've, I've experienced this kind of behavior all through my career. Well, fair enough. But what I want—I want the audience to know that that the story is that's where the friction happened. You, your claim is I'm the guy that put it together. Those guys who were more powerful than you wanted to say, no, no, it's because of us you did it. Is and, that- and there's more depth to it. I left the Sulk after this nervous sure. breakdown and joined a little startup company in La Jolla called Vical. Okay. Vical ended up licensing the technology. I brought all my reagents, uh, protocols, etc., over to Vical. I was set up as a skunk works, and there was no molecular biology. Vi- Vical was antivirals and calcitonin analogs, with Carl Hostetler, Doug Richman, and Phil Felgner as the key principals there, and Dennis Carson. And um, within like two months, we had a follow-on fundamental discovery of naked RNA and DNA that led to a science paper. And um, then I sat with lawyers down in San Diego and 
spent days talking about how this could be used, the potential clinical applications. That resulted in uh, this huge group of patent filings that lay out all the fundamentals of the idea mm -hmm. of RNA mm -hmm. vaccines. Um, and uh, at the same time, they, they ended up coordinating with the Salk Institute. Ender became an advisor to Vical, and there was a coordinated filing of all of the patents from Vical and the patent from the Salk Institute on the same day so that one didn't have a priority date before the other. Now, what eventually happened, if you read forward to 1991, the Salk surreptitiously dropped their patent application. They didn't tell me about it. They deny that they have any records of that, but I have a copy with the letter from the Salk Institute and the filed patent. So this is why I say there was coordination between Vical and Salk. Inder was on the Vical Scientific Advisory Board. Um, and for some reason, the Salk decided, and this is illegal, by the way, under the Bayh-Dole Act. Any inventor is supposed to be notified under the Bayh-Dole Act if there's a decision to drop the patent so that they can then pick it up. But the Salk didn't notify me. The lawyer that did it has retired. The Salk denies that there's any record of what happened and who did it and why. And they've been, I've sent direct inquiries to them about it. They deny, they, they just don't respond. The press has submitted inquiries and they've said, we have no record of any of this. I have the remaining record, which is the signed Salk Institute letterhead letter with the attached patent that they sent me in 1991 when I made an inquiry. Let, let me ask a question just for the sake of uh, legal reasons. Do you have any pending lawsuits right now? No. Where Okay, so to talk about these topics, you're, you're not uh, uh, in liability or anything like no. that. Can it's, we just move on to a different topic? Sure. Okay, let's move on to a different topic. So that's one part that we just addressed. Let's go to the next one. The next one is your last tweet. Kai, if you can pull this up. I just want to get these three things knocked out of the way. Then I want to get into the real topics that I want to talk to you yeah, about. Yeah, that is the one. So did you get the clip that I pulled directly off of my Twitter account that shows the Twitter comment about this? Is that your last tweet or no? Is no, that... this is not the last tweet. This is like the third from the last. Okay. But this is an odd thing happened with my Twitter account. It went completely blank with no notice. Okay. And then I had clicked on a tweet from somebody else, so it had opened Twitter and um, read the tweet from somebody else because I was seeking information, the link, and then left it open on my browser, went back later, clicked on it, and it refreshed. And to my surprise, my entire Twitter account was still there. It had been edited, so the graphic that was on my landing page hmm. was dropped. Interesting. It had zero followers and uh, zero following. So everything had been reset. Um, uh, it had the banner saying that I'd been banned. And it had the one tweet that is this one. Okay, and if you can scroll. This is the only one that we have. Uh, uh, th this, okay. this is what pulls up. When I type in last tweet, uh, so, this is what comes up. The so, Pfizer inoculations for COVID-19, more harm than good video. The Pfizer six-month data, which shows that Pfizer's COVID-19 inoculations cause more illness than they prevent, plus an overview of the Pfizer trial. So in my Substack, stack, yeah. I've got an article that covers all this, and it's got a, a clip, screenshot, of what Twitter has inserted. And so with this one tweet, it's the only one in the stack, 
they've inserted a statement that um, this constitute misinformation okay. and uh, cannot be shared and cannot be viewed. So I infer, this is the only form of communication I've had from them, I infer that this, in fact, was the inciting event, the final straw. Have they responded back to you? No, the lawyers have contacted them. They, they Nothing just, back the from press anybody. has contacted and They won't speak to anybody. That's interesting because... Typically, when Jack Dorsey was there, we would have gotten a response no, from Dorsey. But Dorsey would have said something. But but he Dorsey actually got blocked. He got deleted for a while. Oh, I know what I'm saying because obviously you know Dorsey is gradually stepping down and a new More CEO than gradually, took over. He's now out. Yeah. So, but May he's also going to be off the board. Right now, it's the new CEO that's taking over. Right. But what I'm trying to say is uh, credit to Dorsey. If Dorsey was around, he would have given an explanation saying, "Here's why we took him down." Maybe I don't know. He did with Trump. That. That's why I'm saying okay, that. Okay. Maybe yeah. maybe that's the case. It's speculative. That tweet links to a a. Um, video and a slide deck from the Canadian COVID Care Alliance that explicitly, carefully, logically documents the data manipulation and malfeasance associated with the Pfizer clinical trials. Many, many people have looked at it. It is precisely accurate, technically accurate. Everything it says there is true, is verifiable. So let me let me go to another one. Kai, pull up the Instagram uh, 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 post where the um, there's a post. There you go. Go to the next one. So they created this to respond to what you had to say. Robert Malone. I haven't seen this. Okay, I want to show it to you. I want to show it to you because this is how you respond and let the audience make a decision on where they're at. So they don't, these folks don't, don't agree with what you had to say. Their account, if you go all the way to the top, is unbiased, uh, uh, what is it? Cypot. Okay. So Robert Malone, MD, is a virologist and immunologist with an MD from Northwestern University. In the beginning of the pandemic, Malone was involved in briefly a drug uh, repurposing uh, trial for COVID-19. Malone has proclaimed himself. Briefly? Yeah. That trial just opened. We're now enrolling patients. There's two trials. It's on clinicaltrials.gov. It's funded by the U.S. Department of Defense. It's managed by um, Lidos. You ever gone to the airport lately? See the scanners? They all say Lidos. Huge, massive government This is why I'm doing this. So you can give your argument. Perfect. Now the audience knows. Malone has proclaimed himself the inventor of mRNA vaccine. He is not the inventor of mRNA vaccine. He participated in some early research looking at delivery of mRNA into cells. You've already explained that part. He has spread COVID-19 misinformation of the pandemic. He is fully vaccinated with an mRNA vaccine, which True. you openly talked about, Moderna. But I, I, I get that question yeah. all the time. Why did you do it? When did you do it? For some people... For some reason, people feel like they need to have my medical history. Um, but, but when you said when you got COVID, you thought you were going to die. It's true. C February end, of 2020. End of, end of February 2020. From me attending a computational uh, drug discovery conference at MIT where I was staying directly across from the corporate headquarters of the company that is associated with that initial outbreak in Boston. Got it. Okay. So then he recently joined Joe Rogan, podcast, et cetera, et cetera. Go to the next one. There's there's four of them I want to go through and to see what you're going to say about it. Uh, lipid, net, okay, change them. We can skip this one. Go to the next one. This is uh, uh, my main focus today is uh, spike protein, almost all side effects. Okay, go to the next one. Go to the next one. Here we go. Claim at the top. Your claim, they say the spike protein should have been made less toxic. They're... Uh, uh, response is there is no evidence that the spike protein itself is toxic. Toxic means a substance that kills cells. The vaccine has one of the best safety uh, profiles so, of the vaccine developed. Right. So this is a fascinating example of how fact-checking works. 
Okay, they take this. I've been dealing with this all the way through. Initially with Reuters, Thomson Reuters. Matter of fact, the original reason that I got kicked off of Twitter, I mean, off of LinkedIn, and then reinstated after Steve Kirsch called the vice president. The reason I was kicked off of LinkedIn was I posted something after Reuters had made exactly this claim, um, and I had posted the the links to the science, including from the Salk Institute, demonstrating the toxicity of Spike. There are multiple papers. Okay, this is just propaganda. Okay, there are multiple papers showing that spike protein itself is a toxin. You know, here they're defining what toxic means a substance that kills cells. I disagree. A toxin is anything that causes adverse events in a animal or in human. What is the is, is there a clear definition that we can follow Webster? We, so I have no idea. Webster is no longer has no longer has integrity. They've shifted the definition of what um, a vaccine. What do they call it? Um, the definition of anti-vaxxer. I saw that. Right? They've changed yeah. the definition of anti-vaxxer. People are trying to change um, the the terms of the Nuremberg Accord. People are trying to change the the Hippocratic Oath to be consistent with this party line that's being pushed out. I, it, what the, the rewriting of history is profound. It's not just me. That's the thing about all of this. And, and is, we're seeing that I'm, everywhere, I'm, by the way. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm being targeted. But for me, I'm part of the reason why it doesn't bother me that much is I know it's not personal. It is part of a systemic effort to promote a, a storyline. Yeah, I mean, we know that. that Just yesterday, I don't know if you follow football or not. Are you a football guy or no? No, doctors don't do football? Uh, no, many do, but I, it's not my thing. Aaron Rodgers, I don't know if I'm you a, I'm, a, I'm a equestrian. You are an equestrian. <laughs> my wife is as well. Okay, do you know who Aaron Rodgers is? No. He's, a, he's, he's got 35 touchdowns, four interceptions. Uh, he's got the best record in the NFL. Handsome guy, good-looking guy, well-spoken. And oh, this he is the guy that the had vaccine. the photograph uh, with his bookshelf that has Ayn Rand. In yes, it. that's the one. Yeah. Good for you. So that's what you remember, the Ayn Rand book. Anyways, uh, one of the 50 judges that votes for MVP came out yesterday and said, I think it's a, you know, we should not give the MVP to a person that jeopardized the health of his players, et cetera, et cetera, and he should not get the MVP. Yeah, this yet. is all about the mass formation. So that's, that's part of it. We'll get to that. But go back to it. Go back to it. Uh, uh, go back to the other claims with the Instagram. I just want to wrap this up before so, we get into it. So, so as we go through this assertion, the first part is there's no evidence the spike protein itself is toxic. That's false. That's demonstrably false. Multiple publications. Furthermore, their definition of what toxic is, is false. Okay. Okay? A toxin is something that causes disease in a person when it's injected. It doesn't necessarily have to be directly cytotoxic, although the native spike protein is. So the, this, the, so the debate would be here, the definition of toxic. Next one is that's a long... That's the first start, that's the, and it goes on from there. This is how the fact checkers work, is they'll take a statement... They will restate it using their own words. In other words, they will set up a, a false statement in how they interpret what was actually said, and then they'll refute it. I think this okay, is this an is opportunity called, for This the- is called a straw man argument. There's a number of classic logic flaws yeah. through, that run throughout this. Straw man is a favorite of the fact checkers. Another one is, sorry, this is logic, okay? Um, No true Scotsman is often used. So no true Scotsman argument 
which is a, a logic error in debate, mm -hmm. is to say um, the example would be um, all scientists believe that this is safe and effective. Um, well, I don't think it's safe and effective. Therefore, you're not a scientist and you should be deplatformed. Okay, that's no true Scotsman. So it's a way of, of enabling a narrative and indicating to the audience that whatever the audience is, in this case, it's the world, um, that there is a consensus that is a false consensus because you've deleted all voices that disagree. You've eliminated competition, essentially, and there's a, so let me, you have a let, monopoly. Let on. me open that up just a little bit more because this sure. really matters to your audience. What has happened is that tech and media and pharma, all horizontally integrated in this messaging, have set up a situation in which you, the audience, are not able to get access to the full spectrum of information concerning the risks and benefits of these products, which remain experimental. They are not licensed. There is no community that you can go buy in the United States. They are not shipping it into the United States because some of the clauses that were put into the FDA statement with their licensing agreement, okay, where the market authorization that the FDA provided for community has clauses in it that make it so that Pfizer and BioNTech will not ship community into the United States. They ship it to other countries. Okay? But all of our products are still under emergency use authorization, which is to say they remain experimental. They are not approved. Okay? And so the, this is the fundamental argument in terms of the bioethics, which is where I started, by the way, in all this, is somebody trained in bioethics saying this isn't right. This does not follow the common rule is the slang that's used for the Code of Federal Regulations. I wrote an article in Trial Site News about this way back. Um, I think I was the first person to really raise this. What the government has done is they have made assertions that these products are licensed, and so therefore you don't have to have full informed consent, which is not true. And tech has conspired fundamentally to silence the disclosure of any information which is defined. Here's how they've done it. They did it through the Trusted News Initiative is they set up a definition. If, the, if any information is likely to result in vaccine hesitancy, then that information shall be censored. The derivative of that is that any information about the adverse events, an adverse event profile, by definition, will cause vaccine hesitancy and therefore cannot be shared, cannot be presented in any media or social media environment. We're all seeing that. Okay, it's, it's written right into the charter sure. of the Trusted News Initiative. Yeah. What the functional consequence is, is that th the law is that when you receive a medical procedure, if you go get your, you're not old enough, let's hope, I am. I had my colonoscopy and the... And the you're the second person that asked me that in 24 hours. Sorry I'm not going to do it yet, <laughs> just so you know. What's yeah. this pressure all about? I, I, you know, it's, it must be driven by social media. Um, so... Uh, Craig Dinkin uh, asked me yesterday, I'm like, what do you... But I'm using it as a trivial and example. I I'm teasing Tri you. A sure. minor medical procedure. Yeah, eventually and, it'll happen, and, I'm not ready yet. And, and when you go, when that time comes... Sure, long the, time. 
side. The, the doc that will perform the procedure sure. will have an extensive discussion with you saying this could happen, that could happen, the other could happen, and you know, it'll scare the dickens out of you, and you'll say, okay, we're going to go ahead and anyhow because Lucky I don't want to have colon cancer. Yeah. Right? Okay, so this is informed consent. Yeah. You have to be given a full briefing on the risks and potential benefits and alternatives um, of a treatment. Mm-hmm. By suppressing any information about early treatment options, so this is the whole ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, et cetera, sure. fluvoxamine, that whole story, okay? By, that is one of the requirements for informed consent, is you have to be made aware of alternative treatments, and you have to be made fully aware of the risks and benefits before you receive a product any medical procedure, including a vaccine. And furthermore, it's even more emphasized if it's an experimental product. This is what happened at at Nuremberg. We all agreed that it is not okay to force people to take a medical procedure against their will. And what did we, what was the punishment for people that did this? Now, I'm not saying this is what should be done, but the punishment that was meted out after the Second World War is those docs that did that were hung by the neck. Okay? It is an important fundamental principle of medical practice. You don't want to go to the doctor and have the doctor force you to do something without telling you the risks and benefits. This is fundamental medical ethics. What tech and pharma and media have done through the Trusted News Initiative and that whole agreement is they've made it so that you and your audience are not able to get access to the full spectrum of information to make an informed decision about whether or not you should receive these vaccines. My mission all the way through this, as I said, it comes off of the initial platform of bioethics. My initial objection here was that what was being done was fundamentally wrong bioethically, and the way these were developed had fundamental, um, uh, were fundamentally inconsistent mm-hmm. with all of the training I've received as a as a professional in clinical research and regulatory affairs. I, I, I'm fully aware that I want to challenge you on something. Is that okay with you? Of course it I'm is. I'm going to go through the next three of my challenges to see if you can respond within 60 seconds. Because we got other topics to get into. Go for it. Okay. Your brain is filled with so much information. I want to. I know. Keep, a lot okay. of Here we holes. go. Go to the next. Go to go to the prior one. Go to the prior one. Top right claim: Low, Long COVID and post-vaccine symptoms are indistinguishable. Their response: Malone makes this claim with no evidence. There's a data that shows more than half of those who had COVID-19 have symptoms that persist six months after illness. The same is not true after vaccination. Long-term serious effects after this vaccination is, this are This is another rare. example of the straw man. Okay. Notice what the claim is. Yep. The symptoms are indistinguishable. There is a peer-reviewed publication that demonstrates that specific point. Okay? But they don't address that point. The symptoms are indistinguishable. Notice what they say. Number one, there's no evidence. Sorry. There's a peer-reviewed publication on it. Okay. Okay? Second point. There's data that shows that more than half of those that have COVID-19 have symptoms that persist six months after illness. I never said otherwise. The same is not true for vaccination. Long-term and serious effects after vaccination are extremely rare. I said nothing about the incidence rate of post-vaccination syndrome in that statement. Okay. I said that if you take statistically those that have had the post-vaccination syndrome, listed out what their symptoms are, and take people who have long COVID, list out what those symptoms are, and do statistical analysis, are those two groups different? 
the answer by peer review is that they are not different. They cannot be distinguished statistically one from the other. I said nothing about the incidence rate. So this is another case of straw man. Perfect. That's, that's exactly what we want to do. Go to the next one. Uh, go to the next one again. I'm trying to see which one uh, there's a uh, natural immunity. Go to the next one again. So natural immunity, go that's back. a great one. If we right, so let, me read that one. let me read that one. Let me read that one so the audience can read it and you'll respond. Natural immunity is better at protecting against developing the disease. Natural, their claim, natural immunity and the first vaccine dose D1 may elicit similar antibody levels. This is not true for everyone who gets COVID-19. In addition, natural immunity doesn't include a second dose of D2, which uh, amplifies and prolongs antibody Another levels. Another straw man. Okay. okay. This is irrelevant, what they are saying. And by the way, it's wrong. What I say is the endpoint of disease and death is natural immunity superior to vaccination with two doses of these genetic vaccines, because there's other vaccines. Remember, there's seven WHO-licensed vaccines. We only have access to three, and now the uh, CDC is telling us not to use the J&J product. Okay, so now all we have available here in the United States is two mRNA vaccines, which Tony Fauci asserts are the best available in the world, the best technology. We don't need any other vaccines. But the rest of the world has access to many others. For instance, there's a vaccine um, called Coronavax. It's unfortunately because of the politics produced in China. But in some of the Latin American countries, they're showing that that has better efficacy at protecting against some of these variants. So that's a key point. But what they're saying here, natural immunity is better at protecting against developing the disease, which is what I said. Okay, There's over 140 publications that support that. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a challenge on that. I have a guy in my office that's probably the most conservative guy in the office. Can't name him. He knows who he is. He's listening. He is a uh, Breibart guy. He's a Drudge Report guy. He's a Trump guy. He's a Steve Bannon guy. He hasn't taken a vaccine. You already know who this guy is. He's subscribed to the Daily Wire. He's that guy in the office. We have guys on both sides, but this is that guy. Has not taken a vaccine. In the last six months, he's had COVID twice. As have okay. I. And he brought it up. Uh, he not says, in the last six months. I've had COVID twice. Yeah, but he's had it in the last six months, and he's had it twice. And he's, he's currently got COVID, and he's not too happy about it. So he's at home following the CDC guidelines of five days, you know, uh, quarantine that he's doing. He probably and has Omicron, by the way. He's probably watching a ton of Netflix. But the question I got for you is the following. He's asking, if I have the antibodies, why am I getting it again okay, if I one, have the antibodies? One of the key flaws here is everybody's focusing on antibodies. Antibodies are not what protect you against viral illness. Okay. It's T-cells. Okay, so it's the T effector response. It's not the antibody response. So, so if that's the case, uh, uh, Kai just came back from Norway yesterday. Kai, can you pull up what you have here to read Let, this? Let's let's finish the thread before we jump. Okay, regarding. I'm your very colleague. surprised you want to stay on this. I'm impressed that you want to stay. On. You want to finish this one here with these guys before we move on. This is this is crucial to under for your. But let me stay on this audience. because we'll come back to this. I okay. promise you. Let me just explain to you why I'm showing this to you. Do you have the notes? If you pull up the notes for specific to Norway, okay? So here's what Norway's doing, which is which I thought is pretty impressive. In Norway, if you go up and you say a reasonable approach to get vaccination cards in Norway, okay? Here's the reasonable approach. If you are protected as a result of having had COVID-19 disease, your test results from a PCR rabbit antigen test registered in Norway will be shown between 11 to 180 days after a positive test result. Meaning, if you've had COVID, 
You yeah. tested positive. Yeah, yeah. Afterwards, 11 days later, you got the antibodies. They're giving you essentially the vaccination cards to say. Yeah, that's a policy in multiple European states. So, But, but they're not saying T cells. They're saying antibodies. Antibodies are a surrogate. So when you elicit an immune response, you get both an antibody and T cell response. And the T cell response is much harder technically, much more expensive to monitor. Okay, but that doesn't that doesn't that has no relationship to my statement. It continues. If an antibody test is used as documentary proof of having COVID nineteen disease in combination with vaccination, this will also not be shown in the certificate, even though it provides basic basis for fully vaccinated status for COVID nineteen uh, certificate after only one vaccine dose. So you can go get a vaccination card there after you've had COVID and, and for many, six months. In many other European countries. Why don't we do that also? in America? Why? why? I uh, Thank you for saying it. I've been saying it forever. I think that's fair if somebody has had it. Absolutely. Okay. But, but here's the thing, okay? With Omicron, that is irrelevant. Why is that? Because Omicron is blowing right through vaccination. Now, you cited the Norwegian position. Sure. Okay. You should cite the position, some of the data coming out of Holland right now. The Denmark data is showing that there is a stepwise negative efficacy. This is more techie talk, okay? What that means is if you take one vaccine dose Mm -hmm. with these genetic vaccines, Mm -hmm. you are more likely to acquire Omicron based on these data. And we can go into down that rabbit hole about what that means and the confounding variables and blah, blah, blah. Okay, there's a whole lot of explanations. So don't everybody just jump to antibody dependent enhancement. (laughs) But the data are that are coming out. And this is one of the most heavily tested countries in the world. Okay, rigorous testing. So that means that their baseline for incidence rate is actually fairly reasonable. Ours is junk because we don't do that kind of testing. But there they do. Okay, so. If you go through with one dose, you are more likely to be infected by Omicron than if you've had no doses. Now, it's important to remember that why those... Is that? No, I'm not going to go to the why. I just said we were not going to go right. there. There's you... multiple working hypotheses, okay? I'm not going to go sure, there. Sure. Let's just stick with the data. Sure. One dose, you have increased risk. Two doses, you have even more increased risk. Three doses, you have even more increased risk relative to unvaccinated. Now, here's the problem. There's all kinds of problems with looking at data like this, raw data, but the effect is so strong that it's hard to to imagine that these data um, are, are due just to artifacts. But an example of the kind of artifact you can have is that vaccination will change people's behavior. So I'm just giving this as one example of a confounding variable. So it could well be this was a risk with AIDS vaccine development that everybody was worried about. Mm-hmm. It could be that people have a false sense of security. And if they're triple jabbed, they're more likely to go clubbing than if they're double jabbed. And that's more likely than if they're single jabbed. And if they're not jabbed at all, maybe they're just hanging out at home. Okay, So that's one example of the confounding variables that can exist when looking at data like this. But it is a clear as a bell that prior vaccination is not protective against Omicron. We're seeing that all through the country. I'm sure your audience can cite multiple examples at this point in their personal lives. If not, they will soon. So if you test for COVID, the PCR test for COVID, is that also testing for Omicron or is it a separate test for it? Or is it the same thing? Okay, so let's pick that apart. 
you're making an assumption there's a single test. So, for instance, with PCR, the CDC has recently said that they're the early PCR tests were junk. Sure, I saw okay? that. So what that means is our baseline mm-hmm. in terms of COVID incidence and death during year one is junk from the United States, consequent to this problem. So be careful when you're talking about PCR, because all the trolls and concerned trolls are going to be all over you, because it all depends on the cycle number that you run, because you can get false positive results really easy with PCR. Personally, I like the rampant antigen test, and you can get it over the counter. I think it should be widely available. For some reason, we don't have enough tests in the United States, which I think is another error on the part of the government. If you want to go back to that because he wants to finish that off with the claims that people made on that Instagram post, okay. You want to go to the next one, negative efficiency against Omicron with each subsequent vaccination. That's what I was just telling okay, you. Okay, so go to the next one. The data are out there. Go to the next one. Do we have any other one? No, go back to, go back to, boom, boom. Okay. Uh, vaccination, being infected with SARS-CoV-2 prior to vaccination leads to more adverse side effects. Okay, Ma- vaccination, multiple vaccine doses, suppress T-cells com- and cause intolerance. In their comments, they say nothing about the risk-benefit ratio. They just make these assertions. 4.7 people, billion people have received it. It says nothing about the adverse event risk-benefit ratio. This is what they do again and again. I make a statement and they set up a straw man and refute the straw man. Okay. So this then, is the standard practice for these these fact checkers. Then let's go through this. Let's talk about the mass formation psychosis. Let's talk about that. And I said the word. I did say the word Michael. Yeah, don't say psychosis. I that's, already that's said that's it. So we're screwed right now. But no, but, but let's but let's I, let's agree that it's not a psychosis. It's not in the dia- diagnostic statistical manual for psychiatric illness. It's not in the DSM. Sure. It is not a illness. It is not a psychosis. It is a fundamental phenomena of human behavior and probably non-human primate behavior. It has been with us throughout history. Long time. So, there, so a case can be made that that this process of mass formation and an awareness of mass formation and what it leads to is behind the story of Jesus Christ not saying I'm going to say it so that I don't get that headline on the bloody fact checkers. I'm not in any way different audience after and I'm not in any way saying that I or Peter McCullough or anybody else is Jesus Christ. It is probably also what was behind Socrates being forced to drink the hemlock. It is what is the process that was behind Stalin and Stalinist Russia and the Gulag Archipelago and the purges. It is the process that clearly was behind what happened to the German people in the 1930s with the rise of socialism, right? what we call the Nazi party. It is probably what was behind McCarthyism, this psychological process. Frankly, it is what happened to us when the Twin Towers got hit. This is a fundamental process of human beings. And I had the great pleasure and privilege of being on a podcast uh, with McCullough and Matthias Desmet, who is the, the champion, who, who is, had the brainstorm of that this um, known phenomena, mass formation, explained what was happening in society as he was observing it in real time during 2020. Um, and we, we, with the podcaster, I was able to go through with Matthias and Peter 
and walk through my understanding of mass formation and get feedback from Matthias Desmet, who's the person that had this insight. He's written a book recently. It's only available in Dutch right now. Um, they're trying to get a contract. Anybody wants to drop the money for the English translation, I can put you in touch with Matthias and his publisher. Um, but get feedback about this process and what it means and what the implications are. So I've recently been coached, and let's go to it. I will do my best to represent Matthias's insights. So mass formation, okay. Uh, in 30 seconds, what's the def what does that mean? 30 seconds mass formation, what does that mean? It is a process of uh, development of a consensus among a crowd or group of society that leads to their becoming hypnotized and developing a common sense of um, identity around a single point, an event, a ethnic group, um, anything that causes them to have their focus fused on that one thing and the consequences of that event. And as Matthias points out, Mass formation in the modern sense, and that apparently this is a big discipline, I didn't know, um, lots of academics participating in this, the, the observation has been made is that the tendency towards global and national mass formation is a phenomena of the 20th century and the 21st century. It's become much more pronounced than it ever was in the past. And Matthias attributes this to the rise of mass media. So Forbes writes this writes this article, oh, right? And horribly they say, what is a, a what young is guy? A, yeah, what is a by Bruce Wiley, right? Senior contributor. <laughs> what is mass formation psychosis? Robert Merle makes unfounded COVID nineteen vaccination claims on Joe Rogan's show, et cetera, et cetera. So. The part with mass formation is it's both sides, right? There's a, a community that believes, you know, uh, <coughs> January 6th is as bad as uh, what happened on 9-11. Beth Midler said this yesterday, which is craziness. There's another community that believes the election was stolen from Hillary Clinton because the Russians helped Trump win the election. There's another community that believes, you know, Biden didn't really become a president. The 81 million votes that was voter fraud. Each so side those, has those, their own side of. So that's not necessarily mass formation. Okay, that's conspiracy thinking, and that's a, that is a tangent that's related, but it's not the same. Mass formation is a formal process, and it is much deeper than just that. And by the way, there, there are, there's depth of levels that a society can undergo with mass formation, okay? So mass formation is, is far beyond conspiracy theories. And, and this, this little ankle biking fact checker at, at Forbes didn't take the time to even learn the literature or listen to Matthias Desmet's videos. He's a senior contributor, Doc. Uh, this is be, modern journalism. Respect that senior contributor type. <laughs> right. Uh, that means a lot. Well, it's a, it's a nice you know, title. It, it's a nice title. Did he do his homework? That's the point with modern journalism. He flipped this thing out on short notice without doing his homework. I'm a writer, journalist, professor, system modeler. I'm telling you what he's explaining himself. Computational and digital health expert. Uh, avocado eater and entrepreneur, not always in that order. He likes avocado. So, so, so do I. Um, but it's irrelevant, okay? Did he take the time to understand mass formation theory? Did he read any of the books? Did he read the articles? Did he listen to Matthias? Or did he just react to something that I said on Joe Rogan? 
So, so let's let's transition into a different part of the question that's kind of uh, within the same context. How many people have died so far from COVID? I don't know the answer globally. The one and the problem with that statement is that that mortality rate yeah. from COVID is a contaminated statistic. If you, for instance, if you look at the United States, mm-hmm. um, because the CDC made a, a determination in 2020 that anyone hospitalized or dead that had a positive PCR test, whatever they died of, would be listed as a COVID death, okay? So I used on Rogan the facetious example, just as an extreme, to illustrate the point, that if somebody comes into um, Rush University emergency room in Chicago and they have a gunshot wound to the head and the university can get a nasal, oral, or rectal swab that is PCR positive, and we talked about that. You know, mm-hmm. they can run it up to 42 cycles. They have a financial incentive to do so because if, they, if that gentleman dies, or, or you know, whatever the gender is, but they're usually guys, um, having been trained in Chicago, um, if that gentleman dies of lead poisoning to the head, but they have a positive PCR signal for COVID, that, that university and their hospital gets a bonus from the government. So they have a financial incentive. And the CDC had made a determination, um, for whatever reason, that if a case meets those criteria, it is listed as a COVID death. It's clearly not. There's a whole bunch of a bad data that's built into well, this is, this our system. So we can't, when we talk about the incidence of COVID sure. death, it is a gross overestimate of the true incidence. When I look at the numbers, here's what I see. I, I pulled up the number of people that have died over the years, right? And you look at 2013, 2.6 million people died. 2014, 2.626 million people died. 2015, 2.7 million people died in America. 2016 is 2.744 million people died. 2017 is 2.813. Then uh, 2018, it went to 2.83. 2019, it went to 2.854. So 2019, we got 2.854 million people that died in in America. Next year, 2020, with COVID, it went to 3.358. Okay. So that's a, that's a, so, that's a so, plus of 500,000. So let's just say it's growing at a, let's pick a basic number. It's so growing I love by 50,000 a this, year. What you're talking about, this is super important. And if you're folks running the web, if you can pull my Substack article, so that's RW Malone MD Substack, okay, and pull the Substack articles and then uh, M A L O N E M D Substack, okay. Okay, pull those. Okay, there we go. Now, um, I want you to click on the one that so keeps scrolling. What if the largest experiment? Click the one, what if the largest experiment? Okay, because this has some citations in it that I want to lead you to. As we scroll down, whoa, 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 because I want to cite the journalist. Yeah. Margaret Menge of Center Square. Okay, so... Here's the thread I want to develop in response to this comment. Um, You were talking about what we call all-cause mortality. It is the only valid outcome indicator in this environment because all the data are contaminated. I totally applaud your focusing on that, that data set. Now, here's what's fascinating. 
Scott Davidson is the CEO of a $100 billion life insurance company that primarily insures individuals who are fully employed. He sells his insurance to employers, okay? So his data set is 18 to 64 fully employed. And on a, on a Zoom call with other insurance executives that was recorded, and I've got a subsequent on my getter count that links to the actual video, so you can look at the source data that Margaret was using for this fantastic article in this obscure publication. She did some of the best journalism I've seen so far. She actually followed up with these quotes from this gentleman on this podcast, the CEO of a $100 billion insurance company, okay, not a little thing, um, in which he's making amazing statements. Scroll up so that we can see the title of the article. Um, no, no, not that. Mine, mine is just jabber. Um, okay, can it, I just it, read it? Yeah, go. Okay. So the head of Indianapolis-based insurance company One America said the death rate is up, stunning 40% from pre-pandemic levels among working-age people. We are seeing right now the highest death rates we have seen in the history of the business, not just as One America. The company CEO Scott Davidson said during an online news conference this week, the data is consistent across every player in the business. One America is a $100 billion insurance company that has its headquarters at Indianapolis. They have 2,400 employees. Davidson said the increases in death represents huge, huge numbers and that it's not elderly people who are dying, but primarily working-age age, people 18 to 64 who are employees of companies that have group life insurance plans through One America. And what we saw just in third quarter, we're seeing it continues into fourth quarter is that death rates are up 40% over what they were pre-pandemic. Just to give you an idea of how bad that is, a three sigma or one in 200 year catastrophe would be 10% increase over pre-pandemic. So 40% is just unheard of. Now read that paragraph. So what is driving this unprecedented surge in all uh, cause mortality? Most of the claims for deaths being filed are not classified as COVID-19 deaths. What the data is showing to us is that the death are, deaths are being reported as COVID deaths greatly understate the actual death losses amongst working age people from the pandemic. It may not all be COVID on their death certificate, but deaths are up just huge, huge numbers. So click on the article since I've got that link there. Right there. Okay, so to make sure that the right people get the credit. So Center, Center Square, Square is the Indiana. publication yeah. and Margaret Minge. So look it up. Read this article. Margaret did a fantastic job. So how did, so unpack what this means to you. So he's saying it is up 40%, but not just because of COVID. Right. So, and, and so, so what this, this is a breadcrumb. Okay, this is a leading edge indicator that something is going on here that is surpasses anything that the government is sharing with us right now. And it's coming from a highly credible source. Now, you look in my substack, I haven't made conclusions about what this means. I'm very careful not to. But what's intriguing about it is that he's reporting on a data set that is an age cohort that has very low mortality from COVID-19. These are not the high-risk people. 18 to 64. 18 to 64. That's not high-risk. I'm in the insurance business. It's not a risk. Fantastic. Okay, you know what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. then, okay? So this is a guy that's got his finger on a massive data set, uh, and it's a selected data set. It's employed people, employed at a level that their employer, these aren't these aren't McDonald's well, workers. Are you speculating anything, though? Yeah. The, what are you speculating? I, so I'm I'm observing okay. that this is a 
likely to be a highly vaccinated cohort because they are fully employed, predominantly, I project, I suspect, at companies with greater than 100 employees. I'd like to look into this more because if I see, if I just you, do the- It's not just you, okay? Sure. This has set a fire. When this came out, I posted it first after this article, mm-hmm. okay, on my Substack. Zero Hedge posted it with their interpretation. Then there's a follow-up that's come out because another reporter went and, and got a statement from the company and got a graph from the company that shows a point of inflection after 2020. 2021 takes off compared to 2020. Okay, that's Put this when, link below so others can read it as well, directly from them. That's when the, um, so I think her name is, I, I've got it on my, my cell phone, um, the reporter that did this. She got a statement from them and, and she got a graph. The graph shows an inflection point because it's just, you know, 2019, 2020, 2021. Insurance companies are the right ones that can give you unbiased uh, information. Yes, yeah, and what a they lot have of data. A lot. Of, and by the way, I if I'm if I'm uh, CD if I'm anybody from the government, I'd want to go through New York Life. I'd want to go through uh, uh, Northwestern Mutual and see what kind of data they would give us because those actuaries if, if know one, more than if many one people. One was do. objectively yeah. seeking true data. Which yeah. remember, true data are not allowed here, because these data are going to lead to vaccine hesitancy. Well, I don't. Okay, so let me give you how I'm doing the math. Here's how I'm, I'm a math guy. So I'm just going to do basic Fantastic. math. Okay, let's do it. So we go 2013, 2.596 to 2.626. That's an increase of thirty thousand. Thirty thousand on 2.596 is a, a little over one percent. Let's That's just say increase. Point. It's a three standard deviation. Would be a ten well, percent. Let me increase. continue. So, but I'm just going. I'm just going at a growth rate of the next year it goes up by a hundred thousand. So let's just say that's three percent. So let's just take an average of two percent. Okay. So if in 2019, uh, we have uh, uh, in 2019 we have 2.854 million people that died. What's two percent on 2.854? 56,000, uh, whatever that number is. Okay. So it would go to 2.9 million regardless the following year because every year more people die than the year before, right? That's the numbers that we're looking at. So we go to 2.9 million. 3.358 people died. Million people died. That's an additional 458,000 people died. And then the next year in 2021, this is this year, it drops by 200,000. So if it drops by 200,000 and it's supposed to go up by 2%, say it's 140,000, 140,000 plus 450,000, that's still 600,000 people. So if we're dealing with 600,000 people net net, that died more than they usually would. Let's use that 600,000. Then the math would be, I would want to know out of the 600,000 that died, how many of them died because of, uh, uh, you know, mental anxiety, uh, uh, stress precisely. out, pers- precisely. being home. This is a multivariate. I want to know that. Mul- precisely. Because where it will lead me to is the following, Doc. Here's where I'm going to. Remember, I'm the amateur. You're the expert here. I'm simply speculating to learn from my own family. I got four go, kids. Go, go, So 600,000. So here's where I go to. Okay. 600 more thousand people have died in the last two years. We could have prevented this. If 66% is due to COVID, you said you felt like you were going to die. So you know it's legit. It's not like I, I had COVID for two weeks. I lost 25 pounds. I looked like a toothpick afterwards. Yeah, a lot of people have that. Yeah, it, it yeah. was. I couldn't eat anything for a few days. So I, I respected what it is by having COVID it's myself. It's not nothing. It's no, not it's the not flu. No, it's, so Although I, Omicron is 
a different beast. Are not scores higher five to six, which means it spreads. No, I would say more like seven to ten for Okay, Omicron. seven to ten, even worse. So it spreads even faster. It's weasels. COVID was what? Two to three? Two, Precisely. Two, okay, two to three. Before so Delta is five to six. Wow. So Delta is five to six. Omicron seven, seven to, 10, to ten. So it's not deadly. So it's a good sign that's getting weaker and weaker. Well, we some can, would say. And I've, and I've spoken repeatedly about yeah. what the data are that is fa- behind that fascinating observation sure. that it's less pathogenic, more infectious, and produces higher titers of virus. Okay, so let's go six. 600,000 is what increased. Now, the question I got for you is the next question. I want to see what you're going to say about this one. If you know the answer to it, great. How many people have died taking ivermectin? Okay, so um, fantastic. Uh, My understanding is there's virtually no cases associated with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine treatment in the United States. There was overdosing with hydroxychloroquine, and if you, you can kill people, by overdosing with hydroxychloroquine. Do we know how many people? But, well, it's, yeah, it's all in the, it's, I don't know personally. I yeah. can't tell you directly. I'd be so curious. Is it less than a thousand? Is it more than a thousand? I don't is know it? because it depends on the dose. Hydroxychloroquine has a fairly narrow window okay. of therapeutic effect where if you go above that, you'll keep people. Yeah. This is one of the key comments about the clinical trials that were run with hydroxy yeah. is, is one criticism is they were designed to fail because they were dosing too late at a known toxic level. And that's why it was kicked out. Okay. So, so is there but, a way but to... They, but the mortality associated with I, ivermectin is one of the safest drugs in the world. Two people died in New Mexico. An article came out from ivermectin. I'm just trying to find out if there's a number. Is that even real? We have multiple reports where people are asserting that something has happened. And then when a journalist, when the journalist actually follows up, they find out that was a false statement. Remember, there was the hospital report that the hospital was filling up with ivermectin toxicity. And then somebody actually called the hospital and they said, are you crazy? And the person that was saying this is actually a locum tenens person that wasn't actually part of our staff. Likewise, there's been multiple reports of death from Omicron that, when followed up, were found to be false reports. Two hundred percent. The CDC came out and apologized on a two hundred percent, you know, mishap, whatever the number. Oh, that the that. CDC has made multiple mistakes with Omicron because they have substituted data based on computational models from the Imperial College. So here's here's for actual going, data. Here's where I'm going with this. So, if we can find out how many died from hydroxychloroquine, okay, if we can find out how many have died from ivermectin, okay. And then we find out how many people have died from taking a vaccine. Do we know how many people have died from taking a vaccine? No, cause, cause, no we don't. Okay, so we don't, we don't have the data to know how many because people died from the vaccine. Because what's happened is the denialism about the risk in terms of death is so high. And here's so I, this, if you guys could do something for me, uh, pull up chilling pandemic data from the insurance industry, because I want to give credit to uh, Mary Beth Pfeiffer who's the journalist that actually went and did the primary research. This is leading me to your best friend, Fauci, by the way. I want to, I want to ask a question about so, that. So if, if what you're driving at, there's very credible, hardcore estimates of the excess death due to suppression of early treatment, um, in, that it is north of half a million excess deaths in the United that. States. Yeah. Okay. That was actually a funded study from Children's Health Defense from a well-known um, economist that actually, healthcare economist, that is not anti-vax at all. What do you want to do with this article? Okay, scroll down. Oh, darn it. Okay, because you hit the um, 
So there's also this the same version of this in her Substack. So if you do that and yeah, you know, see if you can pull that. There you go. Uh, that's the comments section. Um, there you go. That's the graph. Okay. Look at that one. Can you make that bigger? That comes from One America. Make that bigger. <coughs> that isn't so Mary Beth. This is Mary Beth reaching back out to that same company yeah. and asking him for a statement. I think she gets a lot of credit for actually being an investigative journalist so here. So 2019 is straight flat, which makes sense. 2020 is up and stays flat at 125, 126. And then we have 2021 drops 2021 goes up to 145. From Q2 to Q3. Yeah. That is implementation. That that yeah. this, this is association, right? Association does not prove causation. But that is associated so, temporally with the deployment of the vaccine mandates. So this is where this takes me to. This is where this takes me to. So for me, when you run a business, everything's about whose responsibility was it, right? You got to carry your own weight. Everybody has their own departments. You got to carry your well, own. Well, I would weight. argue if you're running a business, um, it's all about risk mitigation and cost effectiveness. Th that is a part of it, but I'm talking management. Like you have a yeah, certain. Yeah, you're talking about retrospectively. Um, who you know, if if bad stuff happens. Where does the buck stop? So I pulled up and I wanted to find out what role does the CDC, FDA, and NIH play, okay? What caused them to start and who was the president when they got started and what is their responsibility? Mm. From your experience, Fantastic. your understanding, what's CDC's responsibility, they what's have, FDA's they, responsibility, they, and what's NIH? That, so, okay, that's fascinating um, approach. I want to say one thing about, about CDC, FDA. Um, USDA, FAA. By statute, the way we've set up those agencies, they have dual roles, all of those. Well, CIA is a different matter. Now, I'm going a different direction with this, yeah. but stay on this But here. each of those has dual functions. They are there to promote the industry and regulate the industry simultaneously. Promote and, and regulate, regulate the okay. industry. So, for instance, we end up with USDA repeatedly being headed by former Monsanto executives. Mm -hmm. We have an FAA that is so compromised by regulatory capture with Boeing that we end up with the 737 MAX fiasco. And we have a CDC that has a dual mission of promoting and regulating vaccines and, and monitoring vaccine safety and adverse events. And the CDC, like any federal agency, responds to their funding stream. The funding for promoting vaccines is far greater than the funding for regulatory uh, on vaccines and monitoring vaccine safety. So vaccine safety is relatively underfunded, and vaccine advocacy is relatively overfunded. This has to do with the sausage making that happens on the Hill under the influence of big pharma. One of my fundamental positions, and this goes back to, you know, I think what you're starting to tap into is where you're talking about where does the blame rest. The blame rests on our political process. We have a situation in which the pharmaceutical industry is allowed to charge more for drugs in the United States than almost anywhere else in the world. And much of the, a significant fraction of that profit basically goes back to fund elections. They cycle that money back in, and they sponsor people down to city council level. 
45% of FDA's funding is from Pfizer. We pulled up some of these numbers. Bingo. We are, we, I understand. And please they stay lobbied, on this with me. They, so We're they lobbied get to for it. that position. We're going to get to it. I'm trying to find out from for the audience to know what is FDA's job, what's NIH's job, and what's CDC's job. FDA's job is both to promote the pharmaceutical industry and to regulate it and ensure that we have purity, safety, efficacy of medical products. NIH? NIH is supposed to be review and in scientific uh, investigation, novel information. CDC? CDC is public health, and remember, it's the Centers for Disease Control mm -hmm. and Prevention, and prevention was yep. added. Yep. Okay? So CDC is supposed to be our premier uh, vehicle for capturing public health information and, and advising on policy relating to public health. But they have a special carve-out that's unique, okay? The ACIP and the Vaccines for Children program is funded um, in an, a unique manner. If a pharmaceutical company can get a vaccine approved by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and recommended for the Vaccines for Children program, they immediately get broad immunity so this is the indemnification, mm -hmm. okay? If, if you can reach the point where you get licensed for a pediatric vaccine, then that vaccine will be purchased for pediatric use as part of the Vaccines for Children schedule by the U.S. government, deployed nationally, and it doesn't require oversight or authorization by Congress. They have a direct pipeline into the federal budget that if you can get your vaccine product through the ACIP and get it recommended by the CDC um, uh, Vaccines for Children program, mm -hmm. you are fully protected against any future liability and you have a cash cow the likes of which any um, CEO would dream of. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, NIH is a $6 billion budget as they got. But I, I ask this question because all I'm of I'm talking these... about not NIH. I'm talking about the Vaccines for Children program from the CDC. The CDC has authority through the Vaccines for Children program to purchase product using the federal budget without direct congressional authority. So this is leading me to the following. Each of these organizations was started with good intentions. When you look at the history of why it got started. So George Washington in 1777 uh, uh, instigated mandatory inoculation against smallpox for all Continental Army troops. I was in the military. God knows how many vaccines I took day one. I didn't have a choice. I took 11 shots, and it was bend like over. the air guns that they gave it to us. Well, thank God it wasn't bend over because it was more <laughs> shoulders. when I, I don't remember the bend over. But the, the FDA, in 1880s, Harvey Washington Wiley, a scientist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Bureau of Chemistry, he was known as crusading chemist, pushing for tighter regulations over food and medicine, even conducting highly publicized experiments in which he fed healthy men tainted food. As a result of intense lobbying by Wiley and other reformers, le legislators came out with the Food and Drug Act of 1906. Eventually, it read, uh, led to the and FDA then, that And we then we today. had the thalidomide event. And then the next one is uh, the NIH, 1789, which led to that. 
Today, the NIH has 20 different institutes and centers, including the National Library of Medicine, National Institute of Mental Health. And then you got the CDC. It started out uh, as the Office of Malaria Control and War Areas, an obscure branch of public health services founded in which 1942. Is why it was, which is why it's in Atlanta, by the way. And it was the CDC that was responsible for the Tuskegee experiment. So a lot of these things were good intentions. Good intentions. Absolutely. They started off with good intentions. And I think if you and I were to start a country together, let's just say we start a country we would, together. We would say those are all essential functions. We need those organizations to Absolutely. help us out. But then the challenge becomes hiring the right person to run those things. Here's my I, I wouldn't even put it that way. I would say the challenge is to structure those organizations in a way that those that are hired are properly incentivized. So for me, uh, as a, as a uh, guy that is running a business and I have uh, seven C-suites report to me, I'm running all these different responsibilities. I have a board, I have investors, I deal with carries, I deal with insurance companies. All the buck start, you know, everything comes to me. Everything rises and falls on leadership. In, in the American capitalistic society, that's the way. The and I is. like it. I wouldn't want it any other way. I think that's how it should be because responsibility is on the guy. It's, hey, the you want it's the absolute worst system in the world except for all the others. Yeah, I, you, that's a good way of putting it. That's a very good way of putting it. But here's where it goes. The guy at the top is a guy named Anthony Fauci. Okay. When, when and when you say at the top, it's important to say we're not talking at the top of NIAID even though that's his appointment. Well, he advises yeah. the president. He is in charge now. He has the power of the presidency for everything relating to this uh, disease. It seems like he kind of got a little bit more power than even the this, president I, does. I, okay. I, I'm with you on so, that. So, so where I'm going with this is the following. Who can fire him? Who has the right to fire him? So this has been a discussion among my peers for decades. We have all been wondering when Tony was finally going to leave. He won't so, go. But but who? No, it's, it's, and 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 who? Precisely that question. Okay? He's like Jordan Belfort from Wall Street. I'm not quitting. You know, I'm not gonna. You know, that's. I, I know. I know. But Look, who, I, I asked a different with, question. I have dealt with Tony my whole life. I asked a different question. I didn't say who has the power to fire him. My understanding yes. is it's Congress. Okay, so Congress, and how does that work if Congress but, wants? But to remember, Tony is holding two jobs. Okay. He is advisor to the president, so sure. the president has that authority. So that's one. How about and, the other And job? then he has his position as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. He is not the head of NIH. Okay. Francis Collins was until he resigned recently. So Francis Collins was until he resigned recently. Okay. So I went back, and I wanted to find out the history of Tony Fauci. Okay. When he first came out. Did you read Bobby's book? Uh, 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 yeah, absolutely. Phenomenal <laughs> book, by the way. But even outside of that, you know, these open letters and everything that I have, I went back and I wanted to find out, you know, who is this guy? What did he do? How did he come up? How did he become who he is? Obviously, extremely ambitious guy, extremely competitive guy, extremely all of that. Okay, Rode he, his bike pedaling medicines for his parents sure. in the Bronx or something. But there was, a, there was an era in 1980s where he got an open letter from a friend, uh, not a friend of his, an open letter from Larry Kramer. I don't know if you've read this letter or not. Okay, so do you know anything about this open letter? This, no, this nope. has been in Rolling Stone. This has been all over the place. He wrote it, and it— This, it, I suspect, was the old Rolling Stone. 
No, this is this is an open letter from Larry Kramer. Now, let me give you an idea no, what Larry but, Kramer but if is. We're talking about Rolling Stones. Rolling Stone is not now what it once was before. Uh, it, this they... is from 2020, but I'm not going to read that one. I'm going to go to this one. Kai, do me a favor. Before we read this article, go to Wikipedia. Let's find out who Larry Kramer is. It's important for us to know who Larry Kramer is. So <laughs> just have a Larry Kramer okay, with a K, but it's okay. It'll come up there, right there. That's the one. So go to his Wikipedia. Uh, 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 big, uh, so Larry Kramer was an American playwright, author, film producer, public health advocate, and an LGBT right activist. He was gay. He was married to his spouse, he's, David he's, Webster. It's covered in the he, in the book, um, and the band played on. Yep, that's in right. An HBO series. And he is written many, many uh, controversial. He called out many folks. You know, Kramer witnessed the spread of disease later known as AIDS, amongst his friends in the 80s. He co-founded Gay Men's Health Crisis, GMH, uh, GMHC, which has become the world's largest private organization assisting people living with AIDS. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so you know who he is. Now go to the open letter. So I'm asking this question because it's, it, when, you, when you have somebody— Just to give a little context for this, this is my origin story. I was at Davis as this happened. Don Francis is a I So you know the buddy. open letter. I don't know the open letter, but I know the context, and I know a lot of, in first person, what ex- what happened, because I was going back and forth to San Francisco, and my mentor, Murray Gardner, was doing it, okay? But I thought I understood what was happening here until the first time I had to edit Bobby's book, and I was blown away by how naive I was. I thought I was the ultimate cynic. I had no idea about the depth of what went on here, so carry on. By the way, Pelosi has comments about him. It's not like it's just people that are from the gay community on what happened with AIDS and how he handled it. Because the way you handle— so go ahead. Yeah, the way you handle AIDS, I'm trying to say if this guy's in charge of COVID, you had a year, second year, you're failing. we got to get somebody new to replace him. That's my pitch. My pitch isn't about who this guy is. But this story Every, comes everybody out. Everybody asks me this all the time. How do we get rid of Tony? It's not about how we get—to me, it's very binary— he can sit as an advisor to give feedback to the new person, but somebody's got to take over. So here's the open letter from Larry Kramer. The only way this is going to happen is at the midterms. Go to the top. Go to the top for me to read. No, no, where you were at. Okay, so an open letter to Dr. Anthony Fauci. This is written May 31st, 1988. You care, I'm told, although I'm no longer be- I no longer believe it. I've even heard you called a saint, but saints have imaginations vivid enough to know how to spend $374 million in a dire emergency. Okay, By the way, so that was 374 way back when. In that 88, was, which that is was like, big number. That's a big number. Let's just say it's a couple billion today. Yeah. Okay, He's still got more today than he did back then, by the yeah, way. Yeah, for sure. So no, he's leveraged what happened in the anthrax attacks to basically capture the DOD budget for biodefense from the DOD. The, what he has done in building this empire is profound. May I read this? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, in 1988, activist Larry Kramer, exoner- uh, uh, Dr. Fauci, okay, a few months later, Kramer's death from pneumonia in May 2020 it came out, et cetera, et cetera. But this is the article. Let me see which one it is that I got. Okay. Kai, I think you got the better one. Keep going down. Yeah. Keep going down to right there. Okay, the president was okay. I have been screaming at the National Institute of Health, NIH, since I first visited your animal house of horrors in 1984. I called you monsters then, and I call you idiots in my play, The Normal Heart and I call you murderers. You are responsible for supervising all government-funded AIDS treatment uh, research. In the name of right, you make decisions that cost the lives of others. I call that murder. At hearing on April 29th, before Representative Ted Weiss and uh, uh, House uh, Subcommittee of, on Human Resource, 
uh, after almost eight years of the worst epidemic in modern history, perhaps to be the worst in all of history, you were uh, pummeled into admitting publicly what some of us have been claiming since you took over three years ago. You admitted that you are an incompetent idiot. Now, I'm not saying this. This is what he's saying, right? Over the past four years, $374 million have been allocated for AIDS treatment research. You were in charge of spending that much money. It doesn't take a genius to set up a nationwide network of testing sites, commence a small number of moderately sized treatment efficiency uh, e efficacy tests on population desperate and to participate in them, import any and all interesting drugs from around the world for inclusion in these tests at these sites and swiftly get into circulation anything that remotely passes muster Yet after three years, you have established only a system of waste, chaos, and uselessness. It doesn't take a genius to announce that you have elected to personally supervise the study of broad range of new drugs. Yet two years later, you are forced to admit you've barely begun. It doesn't take a genius to request. As you did, 126 new staff persons receive only 11 and then keep your mouth shut about it. It takes an incompetent idiot. Anyways, this continues. No, he's not incompetent. Can you, can you do me a favor and continue to the part where... Uh, I want to read what uh, Pelosi says about it. Let me see if this is the one. Okay, go go to where you are right there. Go to where you were at. Go back to where you were at. We'll get to Pelosi. Um, okay, to quote Representative Harry Waxman at the above hearings, Dr. Fauci, your own drug selection committee has named 24 drugs as high priority for development and trials. As best as I can tell, 11 of these 24 are not in trials, yet six of these drugs have been waiting for six months to more than a year. Why the delays? I understand the need to do what you call setting priorities, but it appears even with your scientist's choice, the trials are not going on. Your defense, these are just confounding delays that no one can help. We are responsible as investigators to make sure that in our zeal to go quickly, that we do clinical study correctly, that yeah, it's this is Anyways, classic, this continues, This right? is his classic doublespeak. But go to Pelosi. Now, Pelosi is Pelosi, right? Um, but now, not quite what she is now. No, no, no. Then. But this is old school Pelosi. But, but this is old school Pelosi when she's largely representing this constituency from, from San Francisco. That's her own base. Assume that you have AIDS, of course, and that you're... Assume that you have AIDS and that you've had pneumonia once, Representative Pelosi said. You, you know that aerosolazide, penta, uh, uh, medane, Aeros pronounce it for me, this is your world. Aerosolized pentamidine. Was evaluated by NIH as highly promising. You know as of today that the delays in NIH trials may not be solved this year. Would you wait for NIH? Would you wait for an NIH yeah, study? I am aware of this quote. So then he replies, I probably would go with what would be available to me, be it available in the streets of, or what you have. We tell you what the good drugs are. You don't test them. Then you tell, then you tell us to get them on the streets. You continue to pass down word from on high that you don't like this drug or that drug when you haven't even tested them. There are more AIDS victims dead because you didn't even test the drugs on them uh, because you did. And then, and then there's the whole fiasco of AZT, AZT, which directly mirrors remdesivir. Yeah, AZT. The parallelism between his strategy then and what he's done now is almost one by one. You, if, 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 if folks, if you haven't read this article, I'm going to put the link below. You have to read this entire article. And but there's this more. There's more here. Okay, that if you dig deeper, because I've been dealing with Tony my whole life. Okay. Tony does stuff that would get me eliminated from the ability to do clinical research. I would, be, I would lose my ability to serve as a principal investigator. He routinely does things like break the blind, disclose 
data prematurely. It's And no one says anything because he's got so much power because he controls the purse. This is part of why the academics won't criticize him, is if you criticize Tony, he will retaliate. Okay, Peter Duisberg is the case study in this, one of the top virologists in the history of the 20th century. And he got canceled, full-on canceled. Full professor, University of California, Berkeley, fantastic scientist, and he got canceled because he questioned Tony's party line about the origin of AIDS and the basis of, of what is now named as HIV. But that Tony does more than this, and I've watched him again and again, and you can go back in C-SPAN and find this stuff. Tony does the same pump and dump scheme that the vaccine companies do. It was yeah. basically pioneered by Vicel, okay? The way the game works is there's an outbreak, and Tony goes to Congress, there's a hearing. Tony says, if you will only give me fill-in-the-blank billion dollars, I will solve your pain by producing a vaccine rapidly. The vaccines up until this point have never come. These are the first vaccines that come out of the Vaccine Research Center ever that but, has but, reached the stage of development. But, but here's where I'm going with this, Doc. In this sense, when Pelosi's asking the question, saying, if you had nothing else, what would you take? He says, No, I, would, I got it. I got it. But, but my question for him is the following. If that's the case, why were they so hesitant about folks using hydroxychloroquine if that's all we had at so, that time pre-vaccine? So Zeb Zelenko put together this fantastic video where he summarized this. Zev is the um, uh, fundamentalist uh, Jewish person in New York sure. who was one of the early advocates of the hydroxychloroquine azithromycin treatment mm -hmm. that was pioneered in France. Okay, mm -hmm. so here on the state side, um, he is the personal physician to a number of uh, right-wing politicians that I'm not going to out him on, okay, that you would recognize from New York. He writes a letter to Donald Trump saying that hydroxychloroquine works and we should make it available. Trump looks at the information, talks to Peter Navarro, and says, we want to make hydroxy widely available. They tell Rick Bright, that who heads up BARDA, which is the organization that gives out billions and billions. They're the ones that funded the J&J &J vaccine. He's, he, he, through the food chain, through Bob Cadillac, the Asper, who's, who's at this point in time Rick's boss, um, tells them to make hydroxychloroquine widely available. Peter Navarro starts sourcing hydroxy for the whole, for the, all the United States. Yeah. And... Rick is on video saying directly that he worked with Janet Woodcock because he believed, this is what he says, it's not consistent with the data. It's been known that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine were effective against SARS-1. I'm the first guy that got, to the best of my knowledge, the Chinese protocol because I had colleagues within the Chinese public health system, and I got them to send me the Chinese treatment protocol, which has both traditional Chinese medicine as well as Western medicine versions. And I sent it in to my buddies that, my buddy that's at the CIA who is reporting to Bob Cadillac, the Asper. Mm -hmm. At the time when Rick Bright asserts that there was no information supporting the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine, that is an overtly false statement, demonstrably false. But what he says on video 
is flat out he worked with Janet Woodcock to ensure that hydroxy would not be available for early treatment. He doesn't say why. He only says the reason is because there was no data and it would kill people. Now, hydroxy is on the WHO list of essential medicines. Mm -hmm. um, it is one of the only of these drugs that has this broad-spectrum antiviral activity that's safe for use in pregnancy. We had actually written a patent on it when I was working with uh, Defense Threat Reduction Agency um, in USAMRID on repurposing drugs for Zika because Zika was a problem of pregnancy. Okay? Hydroxy is a very interesting drug, just like ivermectin is. It has broad-spectrum activities. They're not particularly potent, but they're there, okay? and repeatedly, many papers, including for these coronaviruses. So Rick asserts that it has no activity. There's no basis for this. They're going to kill people, and the president is telling them to make it widely available. So he and Woodcock concoct a scheme by using the emergency use authorization to make it so that hydroxy is only to be used in the inpatient hospitalized environment, which, by the way, is too late. Hydroxy is something that needs, because it's not super potent, it needs to be administered early. It's another one of these uh, agents that appropriately are used as soon as you're diagnosed together with ivermectin. Um, so whatever the reason is, there was a concerted effort to buy these two players. Janet Woodcock was head of Operation Warp Speed for drugs at the time. Rick Bright was head of BARDA. And they conspired to circumvent, for better or worse, whatever you think about Trump, he was the president. The president said, make this drug available, and they worked together to make it so that it wasn't so. Now, what is the driver behind that? Why do we see the FDA marketing ivermectin as a horse drug when it clearly isn't, also on the World Health Organization list of essential medicines? Why did Merck come out with their PR piece that ivermectin is, ivermectin is toxic, an agent for which the, the Nobel Prize was awarded? Um, this. I have to live, I can't get inside of people's heads. I don't know what they were thinking. You know, in terms of all I these conspiracy, yeah, I mean, for, for you, you yeah. can speculate. Yeah. I try not to. All I'm saying is these are the data, demonst demonstrable yeah. data. Have you ever seen the uh, Michael Wallace 60 Minutes interview uh, from 19, I don't know what year it is, 1976, I want to say, uh, about swine flu? You ever seen that 60 Minutes? No. Oh, or, yeah, I have seen clips about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The, he talks to this one lady who took the swine flu vaccine, and afterwards, her name is Julia Roberts, believe it or not, and not no relation to the Julia Roberts, but she afterwards has side effects, and they were trying to sue the pharmaceutical Yeah, know, this is the Guillain-Barre and death story, yeah. excess deaths and, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. And then, you know, if you haven't seen that, folks, I highly recommend you go watch that, because it's 1976. I mean, as a vaccinologist, I've had to deal with this my whole career. Yeah, People but, come up to me and say, you make vaccines, you caused me to have Guillain-Barre syndrome from flu vaccine, because but, I've been involved in flu vaccines. But you know, you know how I process that when I watch that? In that, uh, when you watch that, Gerald Ford doesn't look good. Gerald Ford looks like he's the enemy, okay, because he's talking about, hey, 500,000 people died from swine flu, and this vaccine is going to help us out, et cetera, et cetera, right? Those, so, are, those are projections, by the way. That's another case of over-modeling. Sure, but, but, the, but the point I'm trying to make is, I, like, I remember when uh, Trump said, we're going to come out with the vaccine, and then they asked Kamala, would you take it? And I don't trust. I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't trust it. Right. right? And then Biden says, I wouldn't take it. And then I, I think 
The unfortunate thing that makes me feel very uncomfortable, I've lived in Iran 10 years, we escaped. I'm from a family of communism and imperialism, mother side communist, that side imperialist. I lived in a refugee camp I in Germany it. two yeah. years. Fantastic po background. Point I'm trying to, uh, 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 I don't know if it's a fantastic background, it's just my it, background. It, so, you know, you, you, the point I'm trying to make to you is my concern is when politicians use anything to scare the hell out of people. I mean, yeah, Fauci weapon, back in the day said, if you touch somebody, you can potentially get vaccine. That was not the truth. Or, it, no, you, disease. You, you can get the AIDS. disease. Yeah, you can yeah. get the disease yeah. AIDS if you touch, if yeah. you touch it, somebody it and then later off, on they backed it, off. It set off crazy all over the United States. But that's fear, with though. school children and everything I, else. I, but I think folks— I, I call it fear porn. Yeah, I, 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 you know, folks who are leading organizations like CDC, FDA, NIH, I think they need to be more— you know, you go to a doctor. The doctor in, you want to talk a, to is like— In the best of all, yeah. of all possible worlds, they're objective and they have no conflicts of interest instead of flipping like Scott Gottlieb straight into becoming a board member Skin on the Pfizer. the crap out of people. Like thinking Grow Root says people have six biggest fears. You know, at the top is death. People are afraid of dying. You come out and you drop words like this. Words have weight. The, the Biden comment yeah. for about dark winter— and, uh, you know, the unvaccinated. Whitehouse.org, yeah. So, so all I'm saying is I think the only person that's constant here, we can bash Trump, we can bash Biden, hypothetically, both parties. But the only person that's constant is one person. And it's not gotten better. So we such so as say is, America fired is, Trump. He is untouchable. He is the that, Jay Ed, he is the J. Edgar Hoover of yeah, our era. I don't know about that. I don't know if anybody's untouchable. Just a year and a half ago, nobody thought Cuomo was untouchable and he would get fired. And look what happened to him. Ain't nobody in America untouchable. Nobody. The American president got impeached twice. Nobody is untouchable in America, including himself. I think if 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 the midterm elections are coming up. And this COVID stuff By the gets way, worse. Are we still up? Yeah, we are still up. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're still I, up. I, I lose. What, you said you guys got something at 1130. Is that the timeline? Is what you guys got? I thought we had a three-hour session, but okay. So uh, uh, going back to it, with midterms being here, if COVID count goes up and they have to point oh, at it's not some, an if. If it goes Om up. Omicron is ripping through the entire population. It, I'm going to say if. For you win, I'm going to be the if camp, you be the win camp, okay? If it goes up, if they don't point the finger at a person and do something about it, it's going to be a bloodbath in midterms. When, when companies don't do well, someone gets fired. In this situation, so, so a president got fired. Either Biden, Kamala, and midterm Congress people are going to get fired, or this guy's got to get fired. That's that's why we have this. So, mass formation is really important intellectually. When mass formation happens, the people that now suddenly have developed a sense of community that have bought into that mass formation event yeah. have to have an enemy, and that that anger is being directed at anybody which Rip the press— Ripping America apart. And, and very, very actively being exploited to do Families, so. Families, friendships, relationships. Okay? And, and they, their target that has been—the the president has explicitly appoint, pointed to a target. The target is the unvaccinated and the anti-vaxxers, and they have labeled me as such. Okay? I, I've got people telling me all the time, you've got to have full-time security, my friend. Well, you got full-time security. They look very intimidating when you walked in. You know what I'm saying? So you walked in. I'm I've like, just got handlers. I've got handlers. Yeah. No, I got to get like Joe Rogan. 
mean, Joe Rogan has seals around him. He has to. I met them. They're, I was on Rogan two months ago. We had a very good conversation together at a studio. He's the most necessary guy in America today. He's the most trusted, necessary guy in America today because he's pushing the envelope, getting more viewership than Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. But it's not just more. It's like 20-fold more. Yeah, it's, it's blowing them away. Yeah, there is—but there is, thank God for two—I I will tell you, thank God, uh, and I hope YouTube goes this direction as well because I think YouTube's a powerful platform. I hope YouTube— Allow some of these conversations because some. By the way, I'm looking at is the commentary. From, from your lips to God's. You ears. know what the commentary <laughs> is saying? The people that love you are upset at me, and the people that don't like you are also upset at me. That's how an interview should be done. I ha I wanted to do it this way so YouTube leaves this up for people to make. They can hate me all they want. I'm not in the camp of wanting to be liked. That's not my job. You're the product today. They came here for you. <laughs> they didn't come here for me. And I'm not in the camp of wanting to be liked. I'm in the camp of give people so. This is my fundamental principle and has been all the way through. It's coming from that background of bioethics and the critical role of informed consent. What I say again and again on social media is I don't seek to tell you what to think. I seek to give you the tools and the information to allow you to make your own conclusions. You do push the envelope, though. You do. You do. You. 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 You're, you can't say you're in, not a in, rebel. In, in, and by the way, you are also part of the camp of imposing forty-three-year-olds to get a colonoscopy, which I don't appreciate. But <laughs> that's a that's a complete different camp you're a part of. But go ahead. I'm, I'm listening. It's cool. <laughs> so look, the, the the point I'm trying to make is, I you and I get hired. We're best friends. We've been in the corporate world for 30 years. We come and we help companies not go bankrupt. That's our MO. Let's just say that's, that's, that's our my job. Core, that's my core business. But let's just say consulting. that's our job. Let's just say that's our job. Yeah, it is part of my job. We get hired by XYZ company. We go to AIG. We go to IBM. We go to Target. We go to Kmart before they're about to go out of business. Pick any one of these guys. Or, or I'm brought in to consult with stockbrokers and investment analysts. I, we're going to make a list of all the leadership team, and you're going to see which one of them have become bureaucrats, which one of them have become aristocrats, which one of them are, are the innovators, the administrators, the builders, the explorers, the synergists? You have to fire the bureaucrats or arist aristocrats because they're holding the company back. In this constant situation, since pandemic got started, there's only one person that's constant. Only one person. And that's Fauci. I'm not suggesting we fire Biden. America chose to not have President Trump as their president. It's time. It's been long enough. Let's find somebody else. That's my only suggestion. Amen. I don't know if you agree with that. It's, Maybe you I, want no, to have Fauci stay here for a little longer, but that's I, your I, decision. The, from my standpoint, yeah. and, and this is what's going to get you killed on YouTube, saying this. Um, from my point of view, Tony should have retired long ago. The guy's 80 years old. We absolutely must pass um, decision-making power to a younger cohort. And that for whatever reason— Is there anybody that the you think would be good? Boomers just any, won't get out. Is there any name that would be— So here's the problem with Tony. Okay, What I was trained in in leadership yeah. when I was a young man is the first job of a leader when they move into an organization is to begin to train his successor, his or her successor. Okay, Tony has systematically eliminated any lieutenants that are potential threats to him. The one person, there's a couple of people that are angling for this position. One of them is Peter Hotez. Mm -hmm. Okay, And you can see the change in Peter's behavior. I've invited him and Offit. Neither one of them wanted to come. Paul Offit is a piece of work. 
I mean, like he, a sweetheart type of guy, or <laughs> he he I I don't understand the ethics of Paul often. Um, he's loved by a lot of people. On it, the other. Yeah, they're promoted. You know, he's promoted yeah. be, as the uh, inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, he has leveraged his position. He's totally pro-vaccine. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm not pro-vaccine. I'm not pro the You've technologies. You've taken the vaccine. You've taken, I've the, taken the vaccine. vaccine. But I, I am fundamentally a clinical development and regulatory affairs specialist. This is what I do and a with a long history of innovation. I know the good, the bad, and the ugly and where the bodies are buried for all of these technologies. You want to talk about Novavax? I can talk about the good and the bad of Novavax. I can go on and on because that's my job is to be an, an independent analyst and a developer and can not you, to be biased towards this, that, or the other technology. Last 10 minutes that we got, I want to give you a minute to cover... Uh, your organization, but what, by what you do. But prior to doing that, I want to ask the, in conclusion, audiences listening to this. Uh, uh, some of them listen to CNN, some of them watch uh, Fox, some of them watch MSNBC, some of them just watch podcasts like this, like Rogan, like others who are doing a great job uh, 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 you know, getting people to think and do their own research, right? Uh, are you optimistic about the future? Like, what do you see is going to happen next to us? Are you at a point where I think the right people are going to figure it out and say, listen, we're not going to tolerate this anymore? What do you think is going to happen next? So um, this is part, I really recommend that uh, people look at this podcast with Matthias, um, uh, Peter McCullough, and myself. It's on my Getter account. Um, we'll put the link there for people yeah, to go so find you. As Tommy, well. Tommy Kerrigan. I've, you want I've, us to drive it like to a website or to your Getter account? Um, either one. It okay. doesn't matter. Let's put um, either one of them in there. Yeah, the, the, the website is, you know, website, Getter account, and our Substack are the main. And then the Unity Project, unityprojectonline.com. And the International Association of Physicians and Scientists, which is globalcovidsummit.org. By the way, that's over 16,000 physicians and scientists that have signed off on the declaration that includes you should not vaccinate your children. This is the site, the Global COVID Summit site, that has this four-minute video clip of me basically warning parents, you better think twice before you vaccinate your child. It is your responsibility to make that decision. It's not the state's responsibility, and you better think twice because if your child does experience those rare adverse events, one in a thousand, one in 2,000 frequency, you can't fix them. They're with it for life. You're going to live with it for the rest of your life, and your child is going to live with it for the rest of their lives, and you better think it through and look at the data and make an informed decision so that you can find that clip, which is another one that has just exploded virally. Yeah. Um, so, Are you optimistic about the future? That's what I want to here's, know. Here's, so I am... Um, actually, I'm less optimistic about after speaking with Matthias. You're less optimistic. Matthias asserts that he and his colleagues believe that the mass formation has developed to his point that we are going to have to live through that process that is association with mass formation. And the best that Peter and I, who are, for whatever reason, McCullough and I are identified as the leaders in this, um, we, I didn't seek it. He didn't seek it. There's a whole lot of downside, but here we are. Okay, and Matthias's position is that we must continue to speak out, and we have to do so in a rigorously non-violent, non-confrontational way, yeah. because it will provoke violence from those that are suffering from the 
mass formation. Yeah. It will, you know, this stuff that's coming out here, these little tack pieces like this stupid Forbes article, that's just, it's humorous if you look at it and read the logic that's laid out and the words that are used. Senior correspondent. Yeah, but it's immature writing, just yeah. the same as the Atlantic Monthly is immature writing. I mean, so I write, he's not I write better pieces on a daily basis in my Substack, but... He's not optimistic about the future. Is what he thinks that we are already in it, and folks like Peter McCullough and I have a obligation to continue to speak out to reduce the depth of the mass formation phenomena that is developing. He believes that the horse has left the barn. Um, we we have this phenomena. It is a global phenomena. It is driven by mass media. It's driven by pharma bucks. It's driven by the tech gods, and it's we're in it. And w Peter and I and the others, and we're experiencing it on a daily basis. See, I don't know. If, I don't know if I'm there. And here's why I don't know if I'm there. I think we have to fight. I think only the paranoid survive. Don't that, get me wrong. I agree with can that. Can we not use the term fight? Uh, no, we're going to use the term fight because it's fight, flight, freeze. We're either going to freeze and do nothing. We're either going to flight and run away. Or reason we why this, this is the same reason why I'm not using the term mass formation psychosis. Okay. If we frame this as a fight, a conflict, then we will provoke a fight response from the opposition. I think we're... You I, mean, know, it's, I, under, I, I value yeah, and respect yeah. where you're coming from. Okay. But I'm, I'm sharing with you what the psychiatrists are teaching to me, okay, that are deep in understanding this phenomena is, for instance, we're going to have this rally on January 23rd in D.C., mm -hmm. right? Um, DefeatTheMandatesDC.com, okay? DefeatTheMandatesDC.com. Okay. Okay. January 23rd on the quad, the same day that the worldwide rally for freedom is happening, okay? Um, we're going to have to spend... Over $600,000 on security and the other things associated with it. Everybody is scared silly, and so, yet we're still going. Bobby's going to go. I'm going to go. Peter's going to go. Pierre is going to go. Pierre Curry. But we know that we're going into an environment where we're going to be subjected by hostels in, in all kinds of stuff. But we have no choice. We have to continue to speak out, but we have to do so in a way that is clearly nonviolent. Oh, I, I fully agree. MLK against Malcolm so X. That's, Absolutely. That's, that's why I'm, I understand that's why I'm using that language matters. Totally agree. Words yeah. have power. You, you, know, you know, the only reason to, to wrap up on, on this part is the following. If you and I were to talk about the topic of censorship, okay, you're a very smart guy, well-read, you've been around the block. And, you, you, and you, I've you, experienced it intensely. Yeah, you know. so, but here's what I would tell you. Would you say it's more censorship today or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago? I don't know enough about censorship. I only know about what's being experienced now. Well, and what we have is a toolkit for censorship. Yeah. Having been through multiple pandemics. Yeah. I think I, you couldn't do this 100 years ago. I've never seen anything like this. I don't think we, we could not do this 10 years ago. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is I think you would have no voice 100 years ago. Oh, that's true. You, you, there is no Spotify 100 years ago. True. Not 20 years ago. True. So what I'm trying to say is as much as there is censorship, say, with Google, YouTube, Twitter, whoever may be, the concept of capitalism. LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn, whoever may be. No one, you would disappear faster than you know it just 50, 100 years ago. I can't ago, believe so. that I have the profile I have now. Well, listen, 
your, your wife's got to be careful because when you go out there, I'm sure a lot of ladies are checking you out because you're very famous right now. I'm just telling you. So, and you got that Sean Connery look, the Hollywood look going. Anyways, this has been a blast. I appreciate you yeah, for coming out. Yeah, let me say one thing in closure. Please. In terms of looking forward, there's three words I always try to share in closing. Integrity, dignity, and community. The way that we get out of this is we have to restore integrity in our public servants, mm -hmm. in our corporations, mm -hmm. in our communities. The noble lie is not okay. It is corrosive. Um, integrity. Dignity. We have to restore dignity. We have to stop defining human beings as economic units to be manipulated for profit and rent. We have to treat each other with dignity. We have to have social and economic structures that represent, that recognize human dignity. Last point, and this, is, this relates to the fundamental foundation of how mass formation occurs. Mass formation requires as a key predicate this sense of la loss of connectedness. We have to get back to where we are connected to each other as local and larger communities. We have been splintered into so many different sub-constituencies and fragments, and we're no longer connected with each other through churches, uh, social organizations, um, anything. It's gone. And the data on this is profound. So that's, that's when, you, if you were to ask me, how do we get out of this? I think we have these three key words to keep in mind, restore integrity, restore human dignity, and community. Um, build community. I like that. I appreciate that. Folks, if you're watching this, first of all, uh, some people say this is not going to stay up past 45 minutes. YouTube likes you today, just so you know that. So Must thank be you. you. Thank you, YouTube, for leaving this up. We hope it stays on for a while. However, for those of you that are watching this that maybe didn't see the whole thing, uh, if, God forbid, this is taken down, please text us at 310 340 uh, one one three two. Kai, am I saying that correctly? Three one zero three four zero one one three two. The Ward Malone. We will make sure you will get this link. However, at this pace, it's still on YouTube, which we're happy for that. And uh, all the links to follow Dr. Robert Malone will be in the description section. All the articles I talked about as well. We're going to put it in the description section for you to be able to go look it up. With that being said, thank you so much thank for coming you. out and doing this interview. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate Thanks. you. Yeah. Thank no, you. No, I'm glad you pushed me. I have for those that are angry at him. Uh, please understand, we had an agreement that he would push me as much as he felt like doing, and I've got no problem with that. I can withstand scrutiny and pressure. I've been an academic for a long time. I've had a lot worse. And I salute you for that, because <laughs> most people don't want to sit in this seat here. I salute you for doing that. i got a lot of respect for you doing that. Thanks. Thank you. Take yeah. care.